In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, our God, glory to thee, heavenly King, our Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of good and bestower of life. Come and dwell in us, and cleanse from every stain, and save our souls, O good one. Many of us have come across those confession sheets that are given out. Some, have, some people have found it on the internet and sometimes they're given out at church where there's a list of sins to help someone to, conf- to when they go for confession. So there's sins against God, sins against yourself, for married people, and there's a, and there's a whole list of things there. And some of the ones that are there, uh, which are to do with sexual matters, people find offensive. Some people say, why is that even mentioned? Why is the church involved? So, for example, one of them could be perhaps you've committed adultery with a married woman. That's a single person committing adultery with a married woman. Or perhaps you fornicated with an unmarried woman. Perhaps you fell with your wife and committed unnatural acts. Perhaps you did not abstain from sexual relations on Wednesday, Friday, Sundays, feast days, including the night before, and on the days of the holy fasts of the church, which is Lent. Perhaps you have not abstained from marital relations before and after Holy Communion. Perhaps you have denied your spouse his or her conjugal rights. Perhaps as a partner, have you had excessive sexual demands and degraded your relationship? And there's many more. And as I said, some people feel that those matters are private. And even some priests actually think that. I'm going to read to you from an Orthodox website. Uh, an answer which I believe was from a priest. A woman wrote to this web to this website, and this is a church website, not just a private person that made up a website. This is uh, the official church website for a certain diocese in a country. Doesn't really matter where. Um, the woman asked whether certain certain act, certain se- sexual act whether it's a sin or not. And the priest answered, he said, you should also know that when it comes to questions of intimacy, I take the position that clergy should stay out of a married couple's bedroom unless they are asking for counsel on specific sexual issues. 
I will also state that a resolution to, to questions like the one you, you have inquired about should ultimately be based, based on a couple's prayer life and Christian conscience. Now, what's wrong with that? The modernists, the ones who are progressed supposedly, would say that's an excellent answer. What a great priest. He says it should be based on the couple's prayer life and on the on, and Christian conscience. It's up to their conscience to know whether what they're doing is right or wrong. Specifically, she asked whether oral sex is a sin. And he said that it's not a sin. And this is from an official website. And on top of that, he said... There's no need to ask, there's no need to find out what the church teaches because the priest should keep out of the bedroom and you go according to your prayer life and, and, and according to your conscience. That's as if to say that people today, their conscience is so fine-tuned that they know what's the right, right and wrong. We see even Orthodox Christians that are struggling a lot of times don't even know that something's wrong. They might watch television with their children. They think to themselves, what's wrong with that? And a lot of themes come onto the television. They might not even be nudities or sexual acts, but there could be themes in there which is way beyond for their beyond their children. The children could only be ten years old, and they're discussing there about rape or about abortion, which children are too young. But according to these Orthodox Christian parents, they believe that that's not wrong, or they give their children computer games which have as their theme demonic th things, and they say it's only a game. Orthodox Christians might give their children or allow them to read some of these satanic books that exist, Harry Potter, or there's other Twilight things, and they say, what's wrong with that? Or to allow their children to have all posters in the room of all different groups, many of whom sing songs which are uh, against Christ, blasphemies, sexual, demonic, and the parents say, Orthodox parents, what's wrong with that? So this stupid man actually, to, act, to actually say that a, it's up to the prayer life of a, firstly to say that that sin is not even a sin, that act, but on top of that, he says that it's up to the, the, the uh, people's prayer life and their conscience. Parents send their children to Catholic schools, Protestant schools. Priests send their children to Catholic schools and Protestant schools. I got an email from someone the other day that said to me that, because uh, he studied all these things about video games and a lot of these things that, are, that exist out there, and he said that they've got ba that they're based, a lot of them, on demonic things. So he went to his priest with the concern. The priest goes, oh, we watch those. We, me and my children, we play those same things. So if the priest hasn't even got a conscience, how can we demand the Christians to have a conscience, especially today, when people have been deadened because of the distractions of the world. And that's why it's very important for the clergy 
to preach the truth to people to awaken their conscience. Now, others say, should a priest even be discussing those matters? Actually, St. John Chrysostom was accused of the same thing, where, where people, well, he would discuss matters openly, and many other, during those times were saying that he, isn't he embarrassed, isn't he ashamed to discuss such matters? Let's see what he says. In a sermon on marriage, he says, I know that my words embarrass many of you. And the reason for your shame is your own immodest sexual immorality. That's because you've got dirty minds or because you do things wrong. Why should they bother you? What I'm saying, he's saying. St. Paul establishes laws concerning marriage without being ashamed. St. Paul in his epistles speaks about marriage and speaks about uh, sexual matters. And he said, without being ashamed or blushing, without being embarrassed, and with good reason, says St. John Chrysostom, his master, meaning Christ, honoured a marriage. And so far from being ashamed of it, Christ was not ashamed to be present at the marriage, blessed the occasion with his attendance and his gift. And what was his gift? Indeed, he brought a greater wedding gift than any other that attended when he changed the nature of water into wine. How then could his servant, St. Paul, blush to establish laws concerning marriage? How can St. Paul then be embarrassed? And why should any priest be embarrassed to speak about these matters? The evil spirits want, as I've mentioned in many talks, they want the priests to be quiet in many things. On magic issues, be quiet. On repentance, be quiet. And another thing they want the priest to be quiet with is to do with marriage. To do with the sexual matters in marriage. Why? Because people, because they don't have much of a conscience, are doing things that are wrong. And he dances, and he likes that. But not when they're told what's right and what's wrong. So people say, oh, Papa, the priest said that. He spoke about that sexual thing, and he spoke about that, and spoke about that. That's really bad. But those same people have no problems looking at movies or films with that has filthy content in it. They've got no problems in even some of them listening to songs that have filthy content. They've got no problems that their children, the way that they dress, or the fact that their children could even be having sexual uh, relations with people who not even been married. Some people are concerned, but the majority, are they concerned? No. But they're concerned when the priest speaks about those matters. And that's demonic. Now, I'm not going to hold back in this talk because I got rid of the young ones today. And because sometimes it's a bit hard to speak about these matters. 
but if the children have been homeschooled, that's then yes, that's a bit hard because they're not they're not exposed to a lot of these matters. But as for the other children, I wouldn't even care if they were actually younger ones in here, 15, 14. Why? Because they've heard everything, and they are they need to hear the orthodox view. Because all they hear about is the rubbish that's been presented in the world and at school. So I'm not going to hold back because I believe that time is very short and people are in trouble. A lot of people are ignorant and it's necessary for these things to be said. And as I said, some priests do say things, but many don't. Why? I don't know. I can't work it out myself. But let's go on. Should monastics be involved with marriage and sex? Now, to do this talk, I did quite a bit of research and I came across a book written by someone, which I don't want to mention who he is. It's a priest, by the way. And uh, he wrote a book about sexual matters for the, in, in, in the church. And it made me sick, to be truthful. It was, the, it, was, it was one of the most horrible things I've ever read. I'll read you one part. A study, he says in there that he's trying to say that ma- uh, monastics shouldn't be involved at all. They can't be involved, as you'll hear. That should be all left to the married priests. He says, a study of collections of letters to spiritual children by various monastic elders reveals an absence of any meaningful discussion of marital sex. So you understand what that means. He's saying that when you study the letters of the Optine elders and other great elders, Elder Paisios or other uh, famous elders that we know, they, they don't discuss anything meaningful about sex, marital sex. That is perhaps not surprising since the elders are monks and discussing sex with a monk is just as inconceivable as discussing the monastic life with a layperson. So just like a monastic can't speak to a layperson about the monastic life, the deeper issues, that's the same as a monastic can't speak to a layperson about marital, or sorry, a layperson can't speak to a monastic about sexual matters, marriage and things like that, deep things, because the monastic has no idea. Then he goes on and says, Canon law prohibits a monk from blessing marriages. Now, there's a priest monk. They're not allowed to, commit, uh, to, to perform marriages. And even from becoming a godfather to a child, and likewise. And a non-monastic priest, a married priest, whatever, is forbidden from tonsuring a monk. So he found these these, uh, canons. Which is true. But then we have many examples of monks, even nuns, who dealt with the world and dealt with married people. Exceptional. The rule is monastics keep to their monasteries. They pray for the world. However, when people are pounding on their doors and saying, please help, what are they going to do? Throw them out. 
there was one monastery in America. I won't mention which jurisdiction because we don't want to have get in, um, uh, them all upset about it. But there was one monastery in America where they were forbidden to help young kids, young children, young people. And the abbess said, well, what do we do? Close the doors on them. Elder Leonard, if I remember correct, was also told by his bishop to stop seeing people. And he says, I'm not going to stop. I can't do that. These people need help. Saint Nick, Saint Nicola, Nicholas of Japan. Saint Nicholas was a student in uh, Russia, and he saw he 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 got the calling to go to Japan to convert the Japanese to Orthodoxy. He was made a monk. Didn't go to any monastery. Just made a monk, tonsured, became a priest, and off he went. We have examples of monastics that left their monasteries and travelled around, like St. Cosmas, as we're going to hear in a minute, and to, to, to save Greece that was perishing. Even the Elder Paisos, which I'll be reading next next talk, where he gives a whole detail about marital abstinence, sexual relations, full-on details. I don't know what this man's trying to say. The general rule is monastics are to be in their monasteries. But they can't close the doors when people come. And why are they coming? People, my own experience, people ring, ask me questions about marriage, about marital relations. I said, why don't you ask your priest? I'm not comfortable. But your, but your priest is married. He says, I'm not comfortable. And either and, and, and either is he comfortable. When I try to ask him, he doesn't. He says, no, I, I, "I don't want to hear it." Some priests even say that. Now there are some very good married priests, who, are, especially in Greece, um, Orthodox countries, who are excellent. But a lot of them don't want to discuss it. Now, if anyone can give me the answer for that, I really appreciate it. But on top of that, they condemn and say. I rang up a priest a few um, few months ago in Greece, traditional priest, very good. And he said, our oh, monastics, he said, they don't know about married life, so therefore they shouldn't be involved. But I didn't say anything to him because I didn't want to be disrespectful because uh, he's a very good priest. But that's what he believes. And in general, that's correct. But as I said last talk, Saint John, Christi, Father John Christiankin, priest monk in his monastery, but but he helped so many thousands of married people. Elder Cleopas, the spiritual father of Romania, the Elder Thaddeus, the spiritual father of Serbia, Elder Philothos Zervakos, for example, the spiritual father of Greece, and what so many, so many, but. Where are the books written about some married priest to say councils from proto-priest such and such? Don't get me wrong, there are some very good married priests, as I said, in Greece, where you have to wait a couple of months to get to see them. 
and there's even some here maybe, but in general, there's not many of them. And I have to ask the question, why? And why do they judge those? So we go on to the next thing. Let's see what St. Cosmas of Etolia has to say. As you know, St. Cosmas lived a few hundred years ago. And, well, I'll let him explain it. He says, Among the countless gifts which my Lord has granted me, he made me worthy to acquire a little Greek learning, and I became a monk. He, went to Man- he was a monk at Manathos, Philothel Monastery. Studying the holy and sacred gospel, I found in it many and different teachings which are all pearls, diamonds, treasures, riches, joy and gladness, eternal life. Among the other things, I also found this teaching in which Christ says to us, no Christian, man or woman, should be concerned only with himself, how he can be saved, but must be concerned also with his fellow man, so that they may not fall into sin. Everyone is obliged. The, the gospel, that's not written just for priests. That's written for everyone. Everyone, a, a woman, a wife should be concerned about her salvation of her husband. The husband should be concerned about the salvation of his wife. The husband and wife should be concerned about the salvation of their children. Children should be concerned about the salvation of their parents. Siblings are, to, to, are concerned about the salvation of their brother or their sister. Their neighbour, those around. That's the true sign of love. We've said that before. And when someone sees that someone is perishing, ignorant, blind, living in darkness, falling to sin, should that person not care and say, well, who cares about them? All I care about is that I'm saved. Here in this sweetest teaching spoken by our Christ, my brethren, to concern ourselves with our fellow man, that teaching gnawed at me. In other words, he's saying it troubled him. It wouldn't, it wouldn't go away. Inside my heart for many years, just as a worm eats away at wood, considering my ignorance, what could I do? I sought the advice of my spiritual fathers. I asked the advice of bishops and patriarchs, and I revealed to them my thinking, and I asked if such work was pleasing to God to do it. Everyone urged me to go ahead and they told me that such work is good and sacred. What was bothering St. Cosmas? What was bothering him was that the Greeks were converting to Islam because of pressure, because Greeks never had much rights when they were living under the Ottomans. So a lot of them converted because they knew that that's the only way they're going to progress. Even young boys would convert so they can get into the army and get positions and money. And one of the conditions to become a Muslim, especially in their army, especially that group called the Janissaries, I think they're called, was to hate Orthodox Christians. So even though those people were Orthodox, they hated they were, the Greeks would say that they were worse than the ones that were born Muslim. That's what was concerning him. And he said that 
Everyone was telling him, that's good what you've got. That's a good thought. Now, this is interesting. Not like us, that when we get a thought, straight away we think that that thought is from God, which is very difficult when I have to deal with people, that every thought that they get, they don't question to see, is that thought from God? Is that thought, maybe it's demonic, or what's going on there? No, they act on their every thought. But here we have a wonderful example. This priest monk that was in his monastery for many years, an enlightened person, but still he didn't trust himself. Is, my, is it correct? Is this good for my salvation and the salvation of others? Or am I going to go out into the world and make a fool of myself and bring people and knock them down? He thought to himself, the devil would love to see for the people to see a priest monk fall into sin and say, oh, look at the church. The church is off. That's why the demons fight the clergy, even the altar boys. Because the other young people who see the altar boys fall into sin, they go, okay, well, he goes to church. He wears white. He helps the priest in the altar. He's near the holy. He's in the holy of holies. Therefore, if he's doing that, if he goes to discos, if he takes drugs, if he's having sex or she's having sex before, or he is having sex before marriage, then it must be okay. People look at that. If that priest is smoking, I'll, I'll smoke. Oh, that priest, look at him, he, he, he drinks. I can do that too. To that and get drunk and things like that. So that's what was concerning him. He was scared. Is he going to go out into the world and make a fool of himself and scandalise Christians and not help people? So he checked his thoughts. He went and checked. He asked his spiritual fathers in the monastery. He also asked bishops and then he asked the patriarch because of he has to get the blessing, you see. Everyone urged me to go ahead and they told me that such work is good and sacred. In fact, urged on by his holiness patriarch Sophronios, may his blessing be upon us, and receiving his sacred blessing, I abandoned my own progress, my own good, in the monastery in other words, and went out to walk from place to place to teach my brethren. It is not proper for a monk to teach about marriage, but from what is improper, we sometimes benefit. That which I wanted to tell you, my child, he, he was telling the people, what, this, is, he, this is what he was saying when he was teaching now to the people. He was confessing to them his, how he came about to be going around all of Greece and helping. He goes, but from what is improper, we sometimes benefit. That which I wanted to tell you, my child, should have been told to you by your father and mother. These matters on marriage and sex and things like that. They should have been told by your parents. But because they don't know to tell you, I should tell you a few things and you should inquire yourself to learn more. And isn't it strange that after so many hundreds of years since St. Cosmas, when he said that, we come to today where parents still can't discuss with their children those matters.
or if they do discuss it, they discuss it in a completely wrong way. Very few of those who can discuss it properly. Actually, I think the Protestants do a better job. Embarrassing. As my spiritual children, I counsel you. I've told you that for me, it isn't proper to speak of these things. But again, what could I do? Seeing what condition in which our race, the Greek nation, finds itself, I forced myself and I have said, th uh, and I have said them to you to benefit you somewhat. When I see the Greeks are in ignorance on these matters, converting to Islam, etc., etc., he goes, I've, well, he was speaking specifically now about marriage. He goes, what can I do? A monk, he says, can't be saved in any other way except to escape from the world. Is anyone here a monk? Leave monk, go to the wilderness if you wish to be saved. What happened was a lot of monks or nuns, like even today, leave their monasteries and go and live in the world. That's not including the priest monks, the archmandrites, etc., that work in the parishes. Talking about the others that just leave their monasteries. They're not even priests, a lot of them. But you may say, You too are a monk. Why are you involved in the world? I too, my brethren, do wrong. But because our race has fallen into ignorance, I said to myself, Let Christ lose me, one sheep, and let him win the others. Perhaps God's compassion and your prayers will save me too. So that's the, that should be the mind of all monastics. If they have to be involved in the world, that's so beautifully said. But because our race has fallen to ignorance, I said to myself, let Christ lose me, one sheep, and let him win the others, save the others. Perhaps God's compassion and your prayers will save me too. There are, as I said earlier, people who become priest monks specifically for the world. That happened in Russia. Uh, they, uh, they would get positions as teachers. They worked as chaplains in the army. Uh, in Russia, it was not uh, looked at as good for a priest monk to be working in the parish. That's changed now. They've actually got some of them there. And in the Greek church, there are quite a few uh, priest monks that work as parish priests. P -p Personally, I don't like it because I think that a monastic should be attached to a monastery. And they have a lot of those situations in Greece where they've got priest monks, for example, who are preachers, who go out every Sunday to different areas in the diocese and preach to people, and they go back to their monastery. They fill up, they lead their monastic life, and off they go again. That's my principle. Stay in the monastery and then come out every so often, do a little bit of work, go back. If I had to do this every day, I would fall apart. Now, let's do an introduction. Our culture today is obsessed with sex, that's obvious, and sexual satisfaction, enjoyment and pleasure. Society today is very confused in the area of human sexuality. That's obvious as well. People don't know, are they men? Are they females? Are they homosexual? Are they heterosexual? Are they trisexual, bisexual? They don't know what they are. People are very confused. 
Society's attitude towards sex considerably changed during the 1960s because of the sexual revolution. We've all heard of that, the sexual revolution. That was in the 1960s. What's a revolution? Well, the communists had a revolution against the Tsar and whatever orthodoxy, whatever Russia stood for in those days, had a revolution. The revolution was to free themselves from the church, to free themselves from the Tsar, and to, ha and to have freedom. But they got their freedom, most of them in concentration camps. A revolution could be uh, the American Revolution, where they freed themselves from being under the, the British. There's also the sexual revolution. Who are they freeing themselves from? From the church, from society that held wrong views about sex, that considered sex dirty or only in marriage or, or, or whatever. And these people say, we're free, we're free. And at the same time as this sexual revolution, what made it even worse was that they uh, created this pill, the pill, the availability of the pill. And to make things even worse, then we go to the next thing, and in the early 1970s, with the legalisation of abortion. All these things open the door for people, see, you don't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore because you just have an abortion or you take a pill. That means you can have people who are not scared to have sex like they used to before because they were scared they might get pregnant. And getting an abortion was difficult or very costly or dangerous, even though it still is dangerous, but people seem to not understand that. Apart from these, there are also other negative influences. What else happened in the 1960s? TV. Even though it was more in the 1950s, but most people started getting televisions in the 1960s. That opened up... The, that opened up um, everything to people. Things unheard of were shown on television. Hollywood with their films, uh, especially with the availability of television. Now, all these old films that used to be played that someone might have saw in the, 19, in the 1950s or something, now they can be played on television, repeated often. Schools also changed in, during the sexual revolution to become more liberal and teach things that were inappropriate. Music, as we know, changed in the 60s but then we got into that. It was the 60s to do with sex and free love and drugs. And then in the 70s, we started going into the demons. So in the, in the 60s, they sang about sex and drugs and free love, as I said. And in the 70s, they sang about the devil. Pornography. But also people are influenced, Orthodox Christians are influenced by heterodox teaching. That is what the other churches, other religions teach about se sexual matters. See, Orthodox know more about what the Catholic Church believes than what they do of the Orthodox Church. And for the last 20 years, 
the big explosion, the internet. All these things have affected people's views, understanding of, of sexuality, marriage. Whether consciously or not, Orthodox Christians' views about sex have been negatively affected, or a better way of saying it, it is basically distorted. And even those that come to the church and start reading, they're bringing their baggage of all the things they've seen on television, all the things they've seen on the internet, all the things they've seen in films, all the things that they've read in magazines, and they come to the church with their minds all muddled up and then they try to get rid of that right, wrong way of thinking to think correctly. But it's a bit hard to think correctly when the priests, a lot of them aren't even telling people the correct view of the, ch of the church on these matters. Then they try to read books, but a lot of the books are written in a very theological way. And then, comes a, then we come to the, um, the um, monastics a lot of times where they put, try to make things simple, but then they're fought by those who are enemies of monasticism or even by married priests that are anti-monastic. And the worst is some, those who are supposedly priest monks in the world, a lot of them are very anti-monastic because they themselves are guilty, not all of them, but a lot of them are guilty that they're not leading the life that they should be leading as monastics and priests, first as monastics. So they become quite hostile towards monasticism. Ah, the Jesus prayer, now nah, they make, make fun. Oh, prayer ropes. These are, these are people that are, sect, uh, are um, priest monks. See, because they've lost the contact with the monasteries. But there are others who, while being in the world, have connection with the monastery. At least they go often to monasteries, visit them, respect them. And then we've got the married priests, which are also connected. Like in America, for example, how many married priests are running to the monasteries over there, oh, the Frams monasteries, many other monasteries, Russian monasteries, and filling up their souls and then going back to their parishes to give to the people. But as I said, that's some, not all. Now I'm going to go through some issues. We'll go through some examples of the confusion people are having in the area of sexual relations and things like that. There's a lot of confusion, and I'm going to go through them one, one by one. Some I will answer today, some I'll answer straight away, some I'll answer later on in the talk, and some I'm going to answer in the next talk. So one of them that seems to be confusing some theologians and some people is whether Adam and Eve, whether there was sex in paradise before Adam and Eve fell and lost paradise. Now, why that um, concerns them, I don't know. But why I'm going to cover it is because it will help us understand sexual relations now, after the fall. In, so let, let me read something. Now, there is some confusion in the church regarding whether Adam and Eve in paradise before the fall 
would have had sexual relations to have children. The Holy Fathers taught that our first parents in the Garden of Eden did not have sexual relations. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve lived without sexual relations, without sexual desire, and did so in indescribable joy. They did not hunger for food. They did not get tired. They did not need sleep. They did not experience pain, sorrow or sickness. They were not sexually attracted to one another. The sexual relationship between a man and a woman came into existence when Adam and Eve fell into sin and then they were expelled. It says, in other words, hunger, tiredness, sleep, pain, sorrow, sickness, sexual desire, sexual relations began only after mankind fell into sin. However, some theologians want us to believe that sexual desire was part of human nature before the fall, that Adam and Eve would have had sexual relations because God, after he created them, God said to them, as we read in Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So these people say, See, God's telling them to be fruitful, meaning to have children. And, and because their minds are limited, they believe that the, that has to be done through sexual relations, as we know them today. St. John Damascus wrote on this matter, the commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve in paradise, in other words, to go forth, multiply, does not necessarily mean through sexual relations, for God could increase the human race by another means. If people had not transgressed the commandment. So if Adam and Eve did not fall into sin and they stayed in paradise, yes, they would have had children, but not in the same way that people have children today. They don't like that. One actually was starting to say there, so does that mean that God created them without genital organs? That he, went, he went into all this detail. He was being sarcastic. And this is a priest. See, these people are carnal. You know what carnal means? Carnal means the opposite to spiritual. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, they have what's called orders. They've got the De La Salle, they've got the Christian brothers, the Maris brothers. They've got all these different things. They've got the, the, some women, the, Car the Carmelites. But in Orthodoxy, we don't have those orders, but we have, do have one order, and it's called the Carmelites. Now, the Carmelites... Uh, these theologians and clergy who have a carnal way of thinking, an unspiritual way of thinking, they can't raise themselves above into the spiritual realm. Now, you might say, oh, does that mean that you're spiritual? Now, what I think is the following, that we are to look up to the fathers of the church who are spiritual. We bow our heads and say, I accept what you have to say, not what my dopey mind has to say. These carnalites, they come into the church and make up all these silly things. They're not spiritual people. But because they're gifted in their writing, they write things 
and people read it and they go, oh, this sounds really theological, sounds really good. I'm going to read some things that you're not going to believe the things that some of these creatures say. Saint, another father wrote on this matter, Saint George, sorry, elder, desert dweller, George of Zadonsk, a Russian elder, he wrote to a spiritual daughter who was inquiring about Adam and Eve and marital relations. And he, this is what he writes to her. May holy truth enlighten you to correct understanding of scriptural words. Just that first sentence to me fills my heart. May holy truth enlighten you to the correct understanding. Not may your mind give you the correct understanding, but may holy truth, may God enlighten you to know what is the truth. Because today people use their minds. They don't ask God for enlightenment. St. Gregory Palamas would always pray, Lord Jesus Christ, enlighten my darkness. St. Gregory Palamas considered himself to be darkened in his mind. And, and he was always asking God to enlighten him. And as a result of his humility, God enlightened him and became a great holy Orthodox father. Elder Paisios, the same. Elder Porfirios, these people were holy. People think, oh, but why? Why, did God, does, why does God discriminate? Why does he give them grace? And why doesn't he give me that grace? Why doesn't he enlighten me like he enlightens them? Why? Because we lack humility. If we have humility, then God will inundate us with his light and grace. But we lack humility. So why would, you, why would he give us his enlightenment so that we can go to hell through our pride? When these elders and saints were given gifts, they had humility. And they didn't use these gifts as a way for their own glory, because they were scared of that, but they used it for the good of their fellow human being. So, that's beautiful there. Let's go on. Desert Dweller George of Zadonsk says, I'm pleased to quote an example from the homilies of St. John Chrysostom on your so unexpected for me statement, in which, incidentally, St. John Chrysostom expresses the following words. Now he gives the hero the answer. And Adam... So he's quoting St. John Chrysostom to this woman. And Adam knew his wife Eve. And Adam knew his wife Eve. That's what it says in the Bible. After Adam and Eve fell, the Bible says there, and Adam knew his wife. That means that they had sexual relations. That's, what, that's how the, they say it there. Mind you, when did this take place? After disobedience, after the exile from paradise. Then intercourse began. Before disobedience, they lived like angels and nowhere is there any mention of sexual intercourse in paradise. Because previously we were not subject to physical needs, like I read earlier. Therefore, from the beginning, only virginity existed. It is not by carnal union or intercourse that the human race multiplies, but by the unfathomable power of God's blessing. God can make Adam and Eve have children in any way he wants. It is clear to you now that there was no commandment about carnal union, sexual union, 
but that it took place after the transgression, after Adam and Eve fell, in other words, and disobedience, which might not have occurred. If they didn't fall, then they would have had children, but not in the same way that people have children after the fall. Remember when I said earlier on in the beginning, I said that people don't want the church involved in their life. They want to be free, sexual revolution, free. They say, we don't want the church in the bedroom. But the thing is, someone's got to be there. See, Hitler, he hated religion. But how many people can be without religion? What did he get involved with? He used to go and see gypsies and occult people. So, so much for no spiritual. So, and these other people over in Russia, how many of them were 100% nothing spiritual? They were against the church, yes, but they had other ways of tapping into the spiritual, even though they say that they're atheists and things like that. But these people who say out the church or I'm not going to let society dictate to me what I want to do, they have other people now in their, in their bedrooms. They've got the sex therapists. They've got the GPs, the doctors. They've got the internet. They've got YouTube. The people there talking and saying all stupidities there. They've got books. They go and get books, manuals on, on, on sex, novels from corrupt people who talk about these matters. Magazines. They're all in the bedroom. I think even Oprah might be in the bedroom because she talks about things too. And Dr Phil's in the bedroom. Everyone's in the bedroom. So really, at, at, at the end of the day, where's their freedom? Where's their happiness? What do we see? Today, people are miserable. The more freedom they get, the more unhappy they are. Look at those west, those northern countries in Europe, like uh, Sweden and things like that, where they're free, where the parents say to their kids, oh, if you want to be gay, you can be gay, you can be this, you can do whatever you want. It's all, it's all um, uh, the high suicide rate. See, these people are saying, oh, um, we have to uh, give more rights because young kids are suiciding, gay kids, because they're being bullied. That's, there's been a study done on that. They're, they're the one of the lowest. There's other ones that have been bullied, fat people, ugly people, people with disabilities. They're, they're low on the list. And, or, and if you go to these countries where they're pretty much free and everyone's accepting, like... Sweden and others, and even San Francisco, those west, the west coast over there where they're nice and free. High suicide rate. 
Well, why are they committing suicide? They're not bullied because they're all accepting over there. See? But we hear these things, like someone went to a barber and the barber's cutting their hair, Slavic person there was cutting the hair of this person and said, well, if my son said to me I want to be gay, well, I'll say, okay, if that's what you want. You see, because he's been brainwashed from the television, because it says, probably because he's scared, oh, if, I, if I go against him, he'll commit suicide. I'll um, summarise. Someone's got to be in the bedroom. So it's either God's going to be in the bedroom or the demon's and his servants are going to be there. Now, does that mean that everything doctors say, everything that these people say are all demonic? Well, there might be some things. It's like I say to you, okay, I've got a glass of milk. You're first, look at that white, beautiful, creamy milk. And you say, I'm so thirsty, I can gulp that down all at once and my nose will freeze. You know, when you drink milk quick, it sounds really, really nice. But there's a couple of drops of poison. Will you drink it? No. That's the same with these people. They might have 1%, some, some good things. But 99% of what they say is rubbish against the church, against God, against the commandments. So each person has to work out who they want in their life. The sexual function of our fallen nature is something that ceases when our bodies die. So when people die, so does sexual desire. And that is why the New Testament says that there will be no marriage or giving in marriage in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, in the Bible we read, it teaches there that when mankind is resurrected into the kingdom of God, there will be no sex or marriage. One day, the Sadducees approached Christ. Now, the Sadducees were a sect, a Jewish sect that didn't believe in the resurrection. And to prove that there's no resurrection, because they used to hear Christ teach about the resurrection, and they didn't like that, what they did is they went to him and posed some stupid thing there, a question, a silly argument to Christ, regarding marriage and sexual relations in heaven. And I'll just read that and then we'll have the break. It says here, the same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, left his wife to his brother. The brother might already be married. The brother would take the, his dead brother's wife to give children so that those children then can inherit the dead brother's properties and things like that. So therefore, the purpose was just to give her children the same thing happened with the second brother, then the third, and finally with the rest of the brothers, and they left no children, none of them. Last of all, the women died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be, since all of them had married her? Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, in other words, you're deceived, because you do not know the scriptures, the power of God. 
the people of this world marry and are given in marriage. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Angels in heaven. In, they're not going to be married. They're not going to have sex, just like Adam and Eve didn't. There is an exception in the next life. If you're a Mujahideen, you know, those, the, the Muslim martyrs that, that blow themselves to pieces, they'll have 72 virgins. See their, their mentality? Carnal. They believe that sex will continue in the next life. They can't imagine a life, a next life, without sex or food or meat. Number two is whether icons are permitted in the bedroom. People also get mixed up with that. Once a married person asked Elder Epiphanius, which is a Greek elder, Elder Epiphanius Theodoropoulos, uh, he died, mm, I think, um, 80s, I think, maybe. No, I'm not, not sure, but around there anyway. And he, he was asked that question, and he, and he said, uh, my child, you must know that Christ is everywhere, both in the kitchen and the living room and the bedroom. Don't ever forget this. It's interesting, I like what he says, that Christ is everywhere, but that's true, but also remember that some people, as I said earlier, don't want him there. But nevertheless, yes, icons are permitted in the bedroom. Now, some could ask, but if marital relations are going on there, is that disrespectful to the icons? Well, that would assume then that perhaps people would say that something's dirty about marital relations or something's shameful about it. So that's a question which I'm, I'm aiming to try to answer in this talk because some people do believe those things. Now, the number three, there's a lot of problems mix up to do with um, when couples should abstain from marital relations. Now, the general thing that people say is Wednesday, Friday, Saturday evening, Sunday, the eve of a great feast day, and the four Lents. That's Great Lent, the Nativity Fast, the Apostles' Fast, the Domitian Fast. There's also the day before Theophany, which is the 5th of January, the day of the Exaltation of the Cross, which is a fast day, 14th of September, and the day of the beheading of St. John the Baptist, the 29th of August. That is the days that the church teaches. Now, some people uh, uh, requires. Some people say that, uh, where did this come from? There's no canons for this. Um, I, don't, I don't believe it, and things like that. Well, I'm, I will read you some canons in a minute. Number two, so also, I've heard that there are some priests who also include all day Saturday. And that's also correct in, that's in the sense that there are canons saying that the Saturday as well. Now, the reason for that is because 
on Saturday, uh, the, 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 ch the church in the old days would serve liturgy every Saturday and every Sunday. And that's still practiced in Greece, I think. I remember that churches all over Greece will serve both Saturday and Sunday. Because the liturgy was taking place on Saturday, therefore the church fathers said they should, that people shouldn't have marital relations regardless of whether they're going to commune or not because there's going to be a liturgy on that day. Now, I don't think that is followed much now because a lot of Orthodox countries don't do that on the Saturday. But when we do the next talk on marital, on sexual abstinence, and I, I will be speaking in more detail. But I want to tell you a little story. There was a fellow who I used to help years, a few, few years ago, and he suffered from these thoughts that perhaps because I'm a monastic, I'm too strict. So one day he came to me and his face looked quite disturbed, kind of lost his colour. And I thought to myself, this person looks like he's on drugs or something's wrong with him. He was like looking at me in a funny way. And I said, what's wrong? He says, oh, I, um, I telephoned a priest in Greece, a traditional priest, from, and... Uh, I said, yes, that's okay. So um, goes, uh, I asked him about marital relations when they're permitted, when they're not, and things like that. He says, because I thought that because you're a monastic, you're more strict and things like that. I said, yes. And, he, and then he um, said, oh, he told me that it's also all day Saturday. And the poor thing got very, very upset because I never, I've never said that, um, which I never even knew it existed, to be truthful, until I read it the other day. I know Saturday night, because it's the night before um, liturgy. I didn't know about the all-day Saturday, and I've never really heard much people talk about it. But, he's, but he was um, quite upset, because he, and the priest that he rang up was a married priest. So I thought that, I thought that was a very good lesson for, for him. Number three, there are also those orthodox who dismiss the practice of sexual abstinence during fasting periods. And I was say, there are often people who say, why should I abstain for? Why should I, why should I do that? I'll do whatever I want. They're free to do whatever they want. And there are those who demand proof from holy tradition that this practice is required. There are others who say, where does it say that, that you, people aren't allowed to have marital relations on certain days? Where does it say that? There's no canons, they say, so where? Well, actually, the 69th Apostolic Canon, the 5th and 13th Canon of St. Timoth Timothy, the 13th Canon of the 6th Ecumenical Council, the 3rd Canon of St. Dionysius, and the interpretations and footnotes of all these canons. These, can these, these are canons which talk about Wednesday and Friday and, and Saturday as well for those, and Sunday and feast days and Lent, etc., etc., and uh, specifically speak about couples abstaining and the reason why, which, as I said, we're going to talk about in the next talk more, 
so that's not correct. Now, the question arises, but why? Is that because sex is dirty or something's wrong with it? Why is the church saying to married couples not to have sexual relations on those days? Well, I ask, I ask the question on, on these days as well, you're not supposed to eat certain foods, meat and things like that. Does that mean that meat is evil? Does that mean that chicken or eggs is, is, is wrong? So maybe we can make the argument, well, just like those things are not allowed, sexual relations. Well, we know that meat's not evil. We know that oil is not evil. Sometimes they even say no oil, etc. So that can be an argument that perhaps the church... But why? The question is, why does it have to be like that? And we will, I, I want to dedicate more of a talk on, on that. I don't want to waste too much time on that now. But the main thing is that that is a teaching. But there's a lot to it. What happens if one spouse doesn't want to? What happens is there's a lot of things. I had a whole talk dedicated to that. Because this thing about fasting and marital relations is actually the cause of a lot of people having marital problems and divorce and things like that. Now we go to, there's a whole confusion to do with, well, how about when someone wants to commune? What happens there? And we hear from different churches, different priests. Now, some say three days before and one day after. Some count the one day as 24 hours. Some count it as Monday, Sunday evening after 12, which makes it even not even 13 hours since the person communed. Some say it's Monday evening. There's a whole confusion there. Now, others say two days before and one day after. Others say one day before and one day after. Others say like uh, that seven days before and one day after. Some clergy even say it doesn't really matter because, remember, the clergy don't get in the bedroom. The church shouldn't be in the bedrooms. These are priests. Some lay people don't even ask the clergy and they do what they want. There's all the, that's all the confusion that exists to do with that. So we have confusion on which days should couples abstain from marital relations on fast days which days. Now we've got how many days should they abstain for communion. I've looked into this and the con it seems like the consensus, meaning that the majority, it's three days before and one day after. For example, if someone wants to commune on Sunday, they fast for... they. Uh, abstain from sexual relations for three days which is separate to the food because sometimes the food can, only, can be different because strictly speaking there is no canon requiring someone to fast from food before Holy Communion. The canons only specifically say they are to abstain from marital relations. The food is not part of the rule except for 
the midnight rule and you commune the next day. So, for example, one monastery in America, very traditional monastery, they said it's four days before and two days after, and I got all confused why they're saying that. They count the same day as communion, so it's the way they count it. So really, in reality, it's three days, because they said, and then they can come together again Monday evening from 6pm. So that's basically one day after. But for some reason, they count after the night into a second day. Anyway, it's all confusing. But most people would say three days before and one day after. Now, why is there seven days for? Because a lot of Orthodox Christians aren't leading Christian lives. These rules are mostly for people that are leading Christian lives, that keep fasts, that try to pray and go to church and commune, want to commune often and things like that. As for the others, well, even if they fast or whatever for, for weeks, probably doesn't make any difference because they're not really leading Christian lives. But that's why there's a difference. But more on that on the next talk. And as I said here, the fasting before and after communion, separate to the marital relations, as I've mentioned before, some say seven days before and no fasting after. This is now food. Some say three days before, no oil. Others say, yes, you can have oil. For example, if you want to fast for three days before, you can have oil on Thursday, no oil on Friday, because Friday you don't have oil, and then Saturday you have to have oil because it's the day, Saturday you don't fast. It's forbidden to fast on a Saturday without oil except for Great Saturday. So you have oil on Saturday up to lunchtime, and no oil on Saturday night, etc., etc. So, this is this is um, some priests still stick to this three days no oil, which they which they were doing for centuries on Mount Athos. And what happens was, was that because they stuck to this rule, where it came from, no one knows. Mount Athos, they had this strict rule that that for a monk to commune, they have to do three days with no oil. So the monks didn't commune on Sunday because it's forbidden to fast on Saturday without oil. So what they would do is they'd fast Wednesday no oil, Thursday no oil, Friday no oil and commune on Saturday. Now one abbot said, what, are we Jews to um, commune only on Saturday not to commune on Sunday? Why then do people have liturgies? See, it's just illogical. And actually, Elder Haralambos Viniciatis, which we have the book there, he actually was one of the ones who um, stopped that practice, slowly, slowly, because people were getting very upset. He actually um, did not, but that's more on the next talk. Some clergy say you don't have to um, fast except for the morning, they say, oh, don't worry about it, it's okay. Some lay people don't even care to have breakfast in the morning. So there's quite a lot of confusion when it's to do with sexual abstinence, fasting, fasting before communion, sexual abstinence before communion, all these things, there's a lot of confusion. And I think there needs to be a dedicated talk on that to cover that uh, thing. Now, number six, Elder Thaveos of Serbia, who passed away in 2002, he said the following. 
Because of our disobedience to the commandments of our Heavenly Father, we have lost the natural order. Now that we've heard about Adam and Eve, that's what he means. Because of the disobedience, we, have, we are now in what's called the fallen state, not in the state that Adam and Eve were in paradise. That's, in order to re-establish this order, we must practice abstinence. The elder says abstinence is for everyone, not just for monks. Husbands and wives for whom marriage means only the satisfaction of bodily passions will not be justified. Yes, they're allowed to have sexual relations, it says, but they need to also have times where they abstain from each other. They will answer to God for not having been abstinent. Of course, as the Apostle says, they are not to abstain from each other for a long time in case the devil deceives them, but they should abstain only if they both agree. Now that was the theme of the second part of the talk, which the talk became too long, so I had to move it to next week, to next time. That's very important. What does he mean by not to abstain too long because the devil would deceive? And what does it mean that both have to agree? What does all that mean? That's in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Married people should abstain from physical relations during fasts and on great feast days. Now that was the that was all the Thaddeus's advice as a monk, as a priest monk. But according to the Carnalites, they say that they shouldn't speak. But he did speak. Not to abstain from each other too long, because the devil might deceive them. I will say a little bit on that, just a tiny bit, because just in case someone doesn't get the next talk, it means that when couples are abstaining from each other, if they go too long periods of time, then the devil tempts them and they can fall with other people. Number one. And the church is very much against that. And the second thing is that they both need to agree. That's in the next, in the next one now. Number seven. From the life of Elder Nectary of Optina. And he writes a letter to a woman. Truly he is risen, Honourable Maria Mikhailovna. Is that his say? I hope so. May the mercy of God be with you. I received all your letters and money, for which I warmly thank you. I thank you also for your wishes for, the bright, for this bright feast day of the resurrection of Christ. And I also greet you for Holy Pentecost, wishing that you will be well in body and soul. I am pleased to hear that you have good health and joy and continue to live quite well with your husband. I pray the Lord strengthens you so that nothing will disturb the peaceful life between you and your husband. And I underline this. Because when we read these letters, some people just miss it by and go on. But you have to pay attention. And he says, I'm happy that you, are, that you live quite well with your husband and I pray 
the Lord strengthens you that nothing will disturb the peaceful life between you and your husband. Because for the elders, that's the most important thing. The first thing they want to know about is how you're going with your marriage. Of course, today it's a different thing. How are you going with your mortgage? How's the children going? What did they get? They got into university? They got a good job? Oh, your daughter's nice and pretty. Oh, your, your son should get a lot of um, girlfriends. You bought another property. Oh, that's really good. That's not, that, not that those, some of those things are not sinful. I mean, you can buy properties, you can do. But spiritually, what's the most important is how are the married couple getting on? That's the number one prayer for spiritual people. And he says to her, pray for this every day. Don't just count on my prayers, like I said last, term, last week, last whatever talk. He said, you also pray. You should be praying that you and your husband are united and, in, and have peace with each other. Then he goes on. Fight the suspicious thoughts you have against your husband, which we call today paranoia. Now, paranoia can come for two reasons. One we acquired it from when we were young. It can be from mental, mental or conditioning. One day someone said that they were walking along with some people and one of the boys was saying, why'd that car slow down for? See, look, they're slowing down. They're looking at us. Why are they doing that? Look, it's just come around again. And the person that was walking with this young man was saying, or young fellow, whatever, was saying, it's very, why, is he, why is he speaking like that? And then he meets the mother. And the mother was, and the mother was saying, Look at that car, look at that, look at them across the road, look at that, look at that, same thing. So that woman taught her child to be paranoid, to always think like, got to be careful the way that we act in front of our children. But also the devil brings paranoia to couples, puts thoughts. Um, you know, have thoughts, oh, my wife, she's got, she's against me today. Or she's negative towards me. Or she hates me. Or oh, my husband doesn't love me. Or my husband is, uh, only cares about his work. Or, or, or. And some of these things could be true, but a lot of times they're just demonic things. That's why it's good to pray, but also to confess if the, if the thoughts persist. Such thoughts are many times baseless and all they succeed to do is to destroy the peace of soul and confuse the mind. Fight also against all other weaknesses you mentioned in your letter. Prayer has been given to us by God to help us 
in this struggle. So that's why I say the prerequisite to get into the University of Sydney, for example, to get into, say, medicine, is so many marks. That's just, okay? The prerequisite, what you need, or to get into a college. You need English, certain level, you need whatever subject you want to do. They're called prerequisites. Now, we forget that there's prerequisites for them. There's prerequisites for a job. So if you go for a job, what's the prerequisite? Well, if you're going to be a receptionist or if you're going to answer phones, you've got to have a speaking voice. So when you go for an interview and the person hears your voice where you speak, yes, and speak like that, they're not going to give you the job because you don't have the correct prerequisite because you don't know how to speak. But in, in married life, there's also prerequisite. And one of the main prerequisites of married life is prayer. Does the person know how to pray? And if they don't, then don't get married. Because it's like a person going into war without a gun. So when we go into war, we have to have weapons. The Australian, the Australians send um, soldiers to wherever they went, Afghanistan, Iraq, and all these places they sent soldiers to. They've got to send them with the correct equipment. Without the equipment, they will be killed. Now, even though some of them still get killed, even with equipment. But in general, that's what we need. We need equipment. The same as with married people. They need equipment. They need, they need to know how to pray. And today, people don't know how to pray. They enter the marriage. They get into this warfare of the marriage. It's like a warfare. And if you speak to married people, some of them will tell you sometimes it is like a war. The stresses, the, the temptations, dealing with the children, dealing with spouses and things like that. And just, you know, you've got the, the worldly influence, but you've also got the demons trying to fight that couple to break up. And if, you do, if, the cup, if, if they don't know how to pray, then they're basically dead meat. All problems, says the elder, you need to solve with prayer. And I underline that as well. All problems you need to solve with prayer. I, I think I could say it a hundred times. All problems you need to solve with prayer. And yet, there are people who have no idea how to pray. They're weak. No training. Where does the training take place? Before they get married. As single people. Okay, what happens if you convert? What happens if you come to the church after you're married? Well, it's harder. And you've got to put your effort into prayer. As to how to learn to pray, read in the relevant work, relevant works of Bishop Ignati Branchenov. There, everything is explained simply and correctly. You will find then what kind of prayer is needed in your state of soul and spiritual disposition. In one of your letters, among other things, you ask what you should do when your husband demands marital relations on days when it's not allowed. This demand is a transgression of the established canon of the church. So we've already established there are canons saying for Orthodox Christians, 
certain days are not allowed. Now, I've come across this problem and I had my way of dealing with it, even though I had never read it, but I had my way of dealing with that and I would go according to what St Paul says. And St Paul says that a couple must not abstain unless both agree. Now someone says, so if, if my husband or my wife demands marital relations on Good Friday, I would say, well, you pray beforehand if you know there could be some temptations, asking God to, for example, say it's the woman who's got the problem with the, with the husband, pray beforehand not to demand these things on that day or on you know, certain days. Let's say specifically Good Friday. And then my advice was remind the person what day it is, encourage the person to say, this is not right. Try to say to him, stop, no, or her, depends. And if the person doesn't listen, then you have no right to refuse that person. That was what I said. And I um, wasn't sure, but that's what I felt anyway. So I was glad when I came across this particular letter. It says, if after reminding your husband of this canon, he continues to insist in his demand, that is for marital relations, then preferring the lesser evil, you must give in so that you avoid the greater evil, which is for your husband to go with other women and to fall into adultery. Yes, it's a sin to fall on a day which is a fast day, but greater sin than that is to fall into adultery. If a husband or a wife deny each other, then there's a chance that the person who's been denied will fall with someone else, and that's worse. And, I was, and, that, and that is that against... Uh, you, on your part, of course, must tell your spiritual father in confession about this. That is, that against, that against your will, it was needed to transgress feast days and other days in your marital life. I call for you the blessing of God. The sinful hieromonk nectari. Now... Some people say we shouldn't read the letters like literally because each elder is writing a letter specifically for a person. And that's correct. That's true. This letter is written for her. However, I can guarantee you that what was written there by the elder is what the church teaches. And we'll, as I said, we're going to do more detail on this next talk. Shocking, isn't it, when people are ignorant and you know how many people will say, oh, no, no, no. I, I once, I went somewhere, I won't say where, it doesn't really matter, could have been America, could have been Greece, because I've been around back in my, in my uh, healthier days, 
could have been France, could have been England. And this man came up to me and he was basically in tears, older, older fellow. And he said to me, um, that he's, find, he's finding it very difficult because his wife is a um, is uh, is very religious, and basically she was denying him his rights. And he said that with pain. He said to me, "I, I." Pray. He was just going on. It was a bit difficult to understand because he was in, he was very devastated. He says, "I I pray to God that I don't fall with someone else." And I and I said to him, "What do you mean?" He says, "I pray to God that I don't become homosexual." So what happened there? And then thinking about it later on, obviously the devil found some weak point with him. So what, why, why that happens could be uh, many things that can happen. They could be tempted to go to a prostitute. They could be tempted to go with men if it's the same sex. They could be tempted to go with someone else, a married person. We don't know... Uh, uh, what the devil, he'll throw whatever he can find in the person. And this person was in tears and was scared that he might go that way. This is the result of people who do these ridiculous things. If that woman came to me, I would say to her, you are excommunicated according to the canons. You are not to commune until your deathbed, until you stop this nonsense. Your spiritual life stinks. And the same if a man does it, because men do it too, their spiritual life stinks. Elder Epiphanius Theodoropoulos, which is the Greek saint, the Greek elder that I said, he says, how sneaky the devil is. To my spiritual children who make a successful marriage, the devil whispers in their ear and says, how much better would be if you went to a monastery and lived the heavenly spiritual delights, far from family concerns which distract you and pull you down. Then again, to my spiritual children who went to a monastery because they longed for virginity in Christ, the devil whispers in their ear and says, how much better would it have been if you had gotten married and made a home church and lived the happy family life far from ascetic hardships and loneliness which depress you, which depresses you. If the married person became a monastic and the monastic became a married person, the devil would then tell them the opposite. So basically what do we see here is that people are mixed up about marriage, what is marriage, what is monasticism, and the devil's tricks to, to confuse people of where they are. Yes, that's true. I've met people that actually say, oh, I'm finding married life so difficult, children, I wish I was a monastic. I said, why? So you can run away from the troubles. Yeah, won't there be any troubles in the monastery?
Oh, but it's so much easier. They do prayers continually. And how much do you pray now as a married person? Five minutes, ten minutes. If, if, if that, how are you going to do six hours at the monastery? What I would tell people who have these thoughts, I'd say, no, that's, that's not right. But why don't you go and have a rest, go to a monastery, stay a few days. Have a, stay a few days there, live the life a little bit. Have a, and come back, rejuvenate back to your um, marriage, to your home. So they go to the monastery. Meanwhile, the spiritual father should pray for their eyes, for their spiritual eyes to be opened. And after a few days, if they even last, they come back running and they go, it's okay, I'll stay in my marriage. Because they realise how difficult it is. St. Tikhon of Zadonsk says the following, There is a custom that some men leave their wives and some wives leave their husbands under the false claim of abstinence. But this is a very dangerous matter, for instead of exercising self-restraint, there may follow the serious sin of adultery in one or the other or in both parties. Now, as I said before, out of spiritual reasons, supposedly, um, one person might say, I don't want to have sexual relations anymore because I'm too spiritual for that. So they say to the other person, leave me alone. Or they even sometimes leave. They leave their families, leave their, leave their spouse because they're like angels. And what happens there? is that this puts the other person in, in, in danger, that, they, that they're going to fall because they haven't got their wife or husband to go to when they have needs. Or they both might fall. When the husband leaves his wife and the wife sins with another, then the husband is responsible for the sin, as he gave his wife occasion for sin. Likewise, when a wife leaves her husband and the husband sins with another, then the wife is guilty of that sin for the same reason. There was one woman here in Australia who left her family of five children to become monastic without her husband's permission, just left. But she used the excuse that she was going to go to the old calendar and the old calendar church that she was going to doesn't recognise the church that her husband belongs to, which is the new calendar church, so she just left, got up and left. Father John Christiankin wrote a letter to someone and he said, Not long ago I received a letter soaked in tears. A certain person, which is a spiritual father, blessed a respectable couple to live as brother and sister. Now we come to the brother and sister. And after quite a brief period of time, demanded they divorce. And the loving spouse agreed to do this with pain in his heart. So the man... The, so. These people were going to a spiritual father. The spiritual father encouraged them to say, you should live as brother and sister. Nothing makes me more sick when I hear that. The brother and sister syndrome. But you're a monastic. I thought you would encourage that. Dis encourage it. The woman was the one that wanted it more and she said, 
to her husband, let's um, live as brother and sister. He agreed, but then later on, I think he couldn't take it. And then the spiritual father said, you should now divorce, because they're allowed to separate if they both agree. The husband reluctantly said yes. Well, the finale is that in his old age, another consoler appeared in his life anyway. Some of you might not understand what that means. It means that even though this man was old, uh, he found someone else. The grown children judged their mother's podvig, the supposed asceticism, and joined their father. The spiritual father who blessed all of this in the end, banished the mother away from his sight. So they didn't, something happened there. She must have fell into deception. Or maybe she, he was trying to get him to go back. Who knows? But anyway, after all of this, she wrote me a detailed letter about the whole episode with the question, Father, what should I do? My dear, says Father John Christiankin, these days we must not live crazily. It is God who rules the world and not people. There cannot be any direct orders in spiritual life. The Lord gave man spiritual freedom and he himself never deprives he, the, him of this freedom under any circumstances. You can't force someone, he's saying, to do anything. If the person doesn't want then that's up to them. So if a person, for example, comes to me or rings me up and says to me, I'm going to, I'm, I feel like I'm going to fall into sin. I can't, I can't, can't do it anymore. And I said, that's up to you. That's your business. It's your soul. I have to give word for my soul. You have to give word for your soul. It's wrong, you know, but I can, I, I can only pray for you, but I can't, force you. That's your decision. It's your decision what you want to do. I always use that procedure. And you know what? It works. As soon as you start saying to a person, don't do that. No, no, don't do that. No, no, no. Like that to that extent. You take away their freedom. It's up to that person. You tell them the repercussions. It's wrong and this and that. And you say to the per you try and encourage them. But you give them that freedom because Christ gave freedom. And when you read the Bible, you will see on every single page that Christ forced no one. Whoever wants to follow me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. He forced no one. That's why he went out far away where he gave the sermon on the mount there. He far away. And people were, as I said, went for days without food. Why? So they can prove that they were going there of their own will, that they were willing to sacrifice even their own health and, and food by not having food and things like that because they wanted to listen to the word of God. That's why I do the talks here. I don't do it in church. Because there are people who come to church that don't want to listen to these things. So I do it here on a Sunday evening in the hall. So whoever wants comes and whoever doesn't, doesn't. Better for me.
I don't want someone sitting over there all shriveled up like the hunchback of Notre Dame, um, all disturbed because they're hearing things they don't want to hear. See, most today, no one's disturbed because you hear of your free will. You're receptive. When uh, there was a novice at Elder Porfirius's monastery, as I mentioned to you, uh, she wanted to leave, and the nuns went there like jackals and said to her, no, you don't leave, you're going to lose your soul, blah, 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 blah. And when, the elder, when elder Porfirius, St. Porfirius now, when he found out, he told them off. He says, no, leave her to do what she wants. If she wants to leave, let her leave. Don't force her. And she left. But after a while, she came back of her own free will, and then she stayed. Don't force your children. When they're young, okay, you can, but after a while, you've got to let go. Don't force your husband. Don't force your wife. Don't force your parents. You can't force people. So he says here that this person shouldn't have forced these people or whatever to do, these, to, to do that. Or, or she wanted, but he didn't. So think about it. Should you really take on the impossible in your situation? No one can decide our important life's decisions for us. Even in former times, elders did not command God's people. Every person should think over what he wants to ask for a blessing. Now, some of you might think that that doesn't sound right because I've read some elders and saints that did tell people to do things. Yes, if it's a matter of sin. Someone's going to have an abortion. No, you shouldn't do that. And those things that we read, that someone went to an elder and the elder said, you need to get married or you need to marry, these are exceptions. Very exce And even them, those people, they were given the freedom to do, what the, to do it or not. But they're exceptions. I've met quite a few elders in my time and elders as... And one thing that I always find very relaxing for my soul is the freedom that they give. When you go to them and ask them questions, they even say, so what do you feel? What does your spiritual father say? And how do you feel about that? What do you want to do? Well, do that, they say. I remember when I went to Elder Paisos, there was a time when I was, when I was, it was earlier on, I just, just changed, and a few years later I thought of becoming a monastic, and I went to a monastery, and the, the abbot, holy person, but he wanted to have people there, because he had never had enough people in the monastery, and I said to him, uh, well, I got sick, I got physically sick, because uh, of the fast and things, things like that. And uh, I decided I, don't, I can't do it at that time. But he was being a bit forceful anyway, so I said to him, I'm going to go to Manathos, I'm going to go and visit Elder Paisios. When I went to Elder pa pa Paisios and asked him about that, and he said to me, um, what do you want? I said, well, I think I'll go back to Australia, because this was, this was in Greece. And I said to him, I said to him, I feel like I want to go back to Australia and just start teaching again. And he said, then do that. Then I went to another spiritual father, to another monastery, which was the Keli of 
father, Gerasimus, the one who, read, who writes all those hymns, all the services of the Greek church. And, um, and I spoke to the spiritual father there, who's known to be a very good spiritual father in that area, of that, down that area there. And I said to him, and he goes, and I remember, and I, I told him the story, went to the monastery, I got sick, I, I can't, I don't, I don't feel like I'm ready at this moment, whatever, whatever, whatever. And he says, but I said, but the abbot told me that I should, you know, be, be a bit forceful there. And he said, we should do what God wills and not what man wills. That's exactly what Father John Christiankin just said. When someone's forcing you, that's not spiritual. Is virginity higher than marriage? That's another problem that people find today. So these people that I was reading, they actually became hostile against the saints who wrote these things and said virginity is higher than marriage and they became quite hostile and naming saints. And Saint John, which I'm going to read for you an, exa an example in a minute. By saying that virginity, monasticism, is greater than marriage, it means you're putting down marriage. Now, a typical example is the following. Of This was in, an, in a book, an introduction, a book. And it says, at first, St. John Christum spoke highly of virginity, but not of marriage. So St. John Chrysostom lived an ascetical life out in the mountains somewhere. And he wrote a book about virginity, monasticism. And he spoke highly of virginity, but not of marriage according to this person. But later, listen to this blasphemy, he corrected his view and began to praise marriage. His earliest writings emphasised the value of celibate life, which means the life, the virginity, as being greater than married life. That's what... St. John's first book, on that's what he wrote, that, that the life of virginity, the monastic life, in other words, is, is greater than the married life, and this offends this person and other people. His earlier life, now they try to explain, they try to work out the psychological reasons of why, and it says his earlier life, because his father died, St. John Chrysostom, when he was young. So his earlier life as the son of a widow and as a young monk, monk, perhaps failed to give him the opportunity of fully appreciating the potential for grace in married life. Later, when he became a priest at Antioch and later on patriarch of Constantinople, he corrected this imbalance in his understanding and later he became the greatest apologist, in other words, the greatest defender or champion for Christian marriage. Now he's good. But before he wasn't good because he said that monasticism is greater than marriage. That other, the, this is one person. The other guy I mentioned before, who mentioned that other stuff that monastics shouldn't be involved with all that, he was vicious 
against monastics, against this thing to do with virginity. That's like, and he quotes all these saints, one, two, all these holy fathers and saying all these people, oh, I'll read it in a minute. Now, those who agreed that virginity is higher, let's have a look at another clergyman, what he wrote about it. He said, virginity is a higher state than marriage, a scripture and the Holy Fathers confirm. Now, Saint Amphilochios, for example, tells us that, quote, many among the greatest of men, that is the Holy Fathers, have praised virginity and is truly worthy of praise. End quote. He praises, says this person that wrote this, he praises virginity by stating that it is the highest form of Christian life without ignoring holiness of marriage or because you're praising as something as being great it doesn't mean that you're putting the other thing down that you're saying is not as great and he says the holy fathers without ignoring the the holiness of marriage the holy fathers do not elevate the married state to the same level as virginity now when we say the word virginity it doesn't mean that someone has never had sex that could be a married person who becomes a monastic. They still say that he's leading the life of virginity. There is, of course, those who are virgins that have never had sex. That's great. But also it could be someone who has. But later on, they go and become monastic. They say they're living the life of virginity. In other words, they're abstaining from sexual relations. Now, he says here, I'll read it again. Without, ignore, without ignoring wholeness of marriage... The Holy Fathers do not elevate the married state to the same level as virginity. In other words, the monastic life. That is, they consider marriage a second place. Now, these Carnalites, they get very upset with that. They don't like that. They go, how dare they say that marriage is second state? That's basically their attitude. Let's continue on with what this traditional priest says. That is not to say that marriage is somehow evil dirty or wrong. To quote St. John of Damascus, quote, we are not saying all this to belittle marriage, God forbid. We do, however, know that virginity is better than good. Virginity is as much more honourable than marriage as the angel is superior to man. If you compare St. John of Damascus, I think that's what must have ticked them off. That's what must have made these people become possessed because they keep on mentioning St John Damascus as being a person who's a a hater of marriage, a hater of sex. This part must, must have bothered them where he says, if you want to compare marriage to monasticism, it's like you compare an angel to a man, to a person, which is greater, the angel, than the man. Then he goes on to St. Jerome, he says the following, the difference between marriage and virginity is as great as that between not doing evil and doing good. What does that mean? You've got a person who doesn't do evil and you've got a person who does good which is superior. Well, that's good. This person's not doing evil. 
But this person, yes, he's not doing evil, but he's doing something more. He's doing good. He made like a comparison. That doesn't mean that marriage... He's just trying to say as, compa- as a comparison. But he also says, or to speak more favourably, St. Uh, Jerome says, or to speak more favourably still, as that between what is good and what is still better. So, St. Jerome is saying, marriage is good... Monasticism is better. That's it. That, I mean, I think even blind Billy would actually know that that's, that that's uh, a fact. But these people became possessed. Now it happened, as they went, that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. And what do the fathers, how do the fathers explain? Who's Mary and who's Martha? Martha, Martha, they are worried about many things. Who's that? The married people. Mary has chosen the better part. Let's see what Blessed Theophilact, what he, how he explains this. And remember, the Blessed Theophilact is taken from all the Holy Fathers. And he's going to explain and he says, Therefore, you also, O reader... If you have strength, ascend to the rank of Mary, if you have strength. Become the mistress of your passions and attain to divine vision. That's all monastic talk. But if you do not have the strength, be Martha and devote yourself to active virtue. By this means, welcome Christ. Martha, now I've made like a little thing for you. Martha equals cares, distractions, turmoil, disturbance, and the weaker one. While Mary is the contemplative life, monastic life, the undistracted life. That is, that is exactly that. St. John the Baptist was unmarried, virgin. Christ came onto the earth, didn't get married. The mother of God was not married. That doesn't mean that we're putting down marriage, but that's what they believe. And you've got to be careful what you read because then you become anti-monastic. And he who is anti-monastic is anti-God because, as the church teaches, the, the, the spinal, the spine, the backbone, sorry, of the church is monasticism. The backbone. Without monasticism, the church is finished because it's the monastics which teach what is the correct way. All the books just about that's been produced were all from monastics. Yes, there have been some negative things that have come where people take it wrong, and we're going to come to that later on. But I think St John Chrysostom, this last thing before we go for the break, St John Chrysostom says something which when I read it, 
I thought it was, it was wonderful. He says, now the virgins should listen to what follows. Virginity does not mean sexual abstinence. She who is anxious about worldly affairs is not really a virgin. In other words, what he's saying is she's physically a virgin, but she's not spiritually a virgin. In fact, he goes on, he says that this is the main difference between a wife and a virgin, meaning St. Paul. St. Paul explains what's the difference between a wife and a virgin. How does St. Paul explain a woman that's married to a woman who's not married to, say, one who's leading a life of celibacy? Let's have a look. He doesn't mean marriage or abstinence, sex, no sex, and things like that. But what makes them different? Attachment as opposed to detachment from worldly cares. Sex is not evil, says St John Chrysostom, but it is a hindrance to someone who desires to devote all her strength to a life of prayer. It doesn't mean that married people, because they have sexual relations, can't pray. But St. Paul explains. But if you want to give yourself entirely to God, then you choose that way. Because the married woman cares of what makes the man happy. And the man, the husband, cares about what makes the wife happy. But the unmarried person cares about what makes God happy. And that, that thing there is, is, is wonderful because in my experience dealing with married people, the main thing that I notice, it's not the sex, that, that's not to, that to me, that's not even a, a, an, an issue. The issue is distractions. The distractions in their life. That's what makes them more spiritual, to less spiritual. Too many distractions, which they bring on themselves a lot of time. Sex is not evil, he says, but it is a hindrance to someone who desires to devote all her strength to a life of prayer. And I'm going to be going into this in more detail in the next talk. And this last one, in another part, he says, in one of his sermons, he goes, remind one another that nothing in life is to be feared. He's talking to married people now. Nothing in life is to be feared except offending God. And how do we not offend God? By doing the commandments. By focusing on the commandments. If your marriage is like this, your perfection will be similar to the holiest of monks. In other words, if a person who's married can tear themselves away from this distraction, which is, it is, it is more difficult in the world, obviously, then they can acquire a holiness similar to that of monks and nuns. Why are they so holy? Because they don't have sex. But St. John just said that the main reason is because they do not have the, distra the distractions. If you, if you read Elder Paisius's books, 
he puts down the monks, even of Manathos a lot of times, where he talks about the distractions, the distractions, the distractions. In the monasteries, he's against this thing with the computers in the monastery and the, um, the distractions continually of the world. He goes, proper monasticism is to lead a more deep life where you are focused on God. And that, a lot of times, is difficult. Now, some of you might say, but that's not fair. I want to become holy like the monks. That's like when I was teaching and they had certain levels of mathematics. So they had advanced, intermediate, and what was called general. They had three levels. So you had, say, the, the, the children in the general class, they would say, I don't want to be in this class. I don't want to do veggie maths, as they used to call it. Oh, this is all for dumb people. I said, no, but this is your level. Stay where you are and you, you, you learn. No, I want to go higher. I want to go to intermediate. I want to, be in the, I want to learn more. I want to learn the algebra and all these things that they do in that class. And I said, no, because you won't, you do not have the ability. But what happens? I said, do you want to go? One person said, do you want to go? Do you? go, yeah. But don't come and cry to me later on, because he came first in the general. I go, you came first in the general, because that's your level, and you're good at it. But you won't be good if you go into the higher level. Because I want to go and I've got a right to go because I came first. I said, you do have a right to go. Go. But don't come crying later on. So off he goes into the intermediate maths and he lost it. He lost it. Then he came and he says, I want to come back down again. I said, you can't do that. You're in there now. Because I'm not learning anything. That's why I said to stay down where you are. It's the same as it's People have certain abilities. People want to go for high things. So they go for high things when they might not even have the ability to go for those things and they fail there and they also fail, they also, then they don't stay where, they, where their level is and get something out of that. And when a person is married, as St John Chrysostom says, and all the saints, as we notice, a person can, have, can attain a lot of grace, can attain many gifts, maybe not the same as the monastics because of their constant prayers and things like that that they do. However, we have to remember one thing. And like like a, little, a, little, um, ex a little story, which was that there was a schema monk who was buried. And then next to him was a lay person in another grave, but that lay person did their, did their, did their, their spiritual life in the, in the best way they could, didn't reach the levels of, of, of obviously the, the, the monastic next to him. And he was in the other grave there, but he had led a spiritual life, but his desire was that he wished he could be a monastic, he wished that he could dedicate more his life to God, but he, did his, he, he, he stayed where he was, took care of his children, led the spiritual life there, and to the best of his ability. 
but never had the opportunities that a monastic has with six, eight hours services a day and all those other things that they have. Daily liturgy. So, as you know, in Greece, we've got, the two, got these graves there and they, after three years, they open them up because, you know, there's not enough room. They get the bones to put them into the uh, special little, little buildings that they've got over there in boxes with the name of the person. And uh, when they opened up the grave, they noticed that the schema monk didn't have his schema on. But he was wearing lay clothes. And that the, and that the lay person was wearing the schema. Exceptional things, but on the last day, we're going to be very surprised what we're going to see. Because... As St. John Chrysostom says in his Paschal homily, God looks at the disposition. He, not like they do at school. They can only mark you on what you get. You get 30 out of 100, that's it. You get 30. You get 50, you get 50. That's it. They can maybe put a little thing there and say, oh, effort A. But what are you going to, the person's going to say, I've got A for an effort, but I've still got 30 out of 100 for my test. Right? So what's... That's not... But God doesn't mark like that. God marks differently. God doesn't look at the, our results. He looks at in what's in the heart. And that's why there are people who you could see as a mess, including ourselves, full of passions all over the place. But in their heart, they wish that they were better. And these people could be falling into very bad sins as well, by the way, but they just they haven't got any help. It's really strong in them. They don't have guidance. And they keep on falling into sins as well. And on the last day, we will notice that those people could be higher than monastics who had the opportunity, but were slack. But these people, in their heart, they wish they were better. They wish they could be, uh, stop their sins. They wish that they could dedicate themselves. They wish that they could pray. And that's what God looks at, and that's why that happened with those things where that person had the scheme. And that. So it's not exactly like we could be a, a, a woman who wants to become a monastic, but their parents don't allow her to become. And if she became a monastic, she could have become maybe great monastic. But the parents forced her to get married. That's not her fault, people say. Well, that's true, but that's it. She submitted, she did obedience to her parents, and she got married. And that she didn't have a very good life as a married, her husband was off, whatever. But on the last day... Her, what she wanted, but she didn't get, God will give abundantly in ways that we have no idea. So remind one another, nothing in life is to be feared except offending God. In other words, doing the commandments. If your marriage is like this, your perfection will rival that of the holiest of monks. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Eunuchs, as you know, some of you might not know, were men who were castrated uh, so that they can serve the, um, the king's harem or his wife or things like that. Uh, not a very nice practice, obviously, but... That's what eunuchs are. They were, uh, yeah. So Blessed Theophilact says, there are few, he says, who can achieve this virginity. Christ is saying, he, Christ is saying there are only some who can do that. For there are some who are eunuchs from their mother's womb, that is, by their physical temperament, are never aroused towards sexual intercourse. So they are chased without thereby deriving any profit. In other words, some people are born sexually pretty much dead. But they, they don't have a reward for that because they're not struggling with it. Like someone who has a sexual temperament, like they're, but they suppress it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, that, that's what they want to do then that person uh, will receive a reward. Or a married person who has temptations to fall with someone else, but they don't, will receive a reward because their temperament is that they want to go and have sexual intercourse with other people, but they're not. So he says they're like... So uh, it's like someone who doesn't have anger. They just, they're, that's their temperament. And you've got another person who does have anger and he has to fight to, not to get angry. That person will receive a reward because he's fighting or she's fighting with her anger. But the other person doesn't have anger, doesn't have that problem because they're born that way. They don't receive a reward. They receive a reward for, others, for their other struggles, but not for that particular thing. And there are those who have been made eunuchs by men. Those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake are not those who have castrated themselves, for that is an accursed deed. It's against the canons, by the way. Some ascetics, because they're having sexual desires, actually mutilated themselves, and that's you get excommunicated for that. He says, no, when it says they, those who made themselves eunuchs, does not mean that they castrated themselves, but it means that they exercise self-control. You may also understand it in this way. He is a eunuch by nature who, on account of his physical temperament, is not easily aroused to carnal pleasures. He who is made a eunuch by men is he who is guided by human teaching to cut off the burning of carnal desires. That's interesting. He says... Someone can be made a eunuch because they have been castrated, but someone can be made a eunuch because others have told them to do that. Don't have sex. They've been made by men. They've been convinced and said, don't have sex or 
things like that. But he says, he who makes himself a... Uh, He who makes himself a eunuch is he who is instructed by no one else but by himself and who, self-taught, inclines towards chastity. So even if a monastic can't be made to go and, and deny himself, what is in his nature or her nature? Someone can't say, you need to become a monk or a nun. You deny, don't go and you don't need to have sexual relations with anyone. You go and become. You can't be forced. It's got to come from the person, with, with, from, from, from themselves. So this one is best, who is guided not by another, but by himself to the kingdom of heaven. Not even a spiritual father can force someone to say, you will, have, you will lead a life of virginity. Christ wants us of our own free will to practice virtue, saying, quote, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. That's what Christ says. He who is able to do it, let him do it. For Christ neither demands virginity, nor does he dissolve marriage. And this is the end of it, which is the consent of all the Holy Fathers, the last sin, the last sect, but he puts virginity first. Christ puts virginity first. So let's put that to rest. And remember, out of all the apostles, Saint, uh, Christ loved Saint John the theologian the most because of his virginity, physical virginity as well. The next dilemma that we come across in the, um, today is... What is the main purpose of marriage? Or what is the, some people even say, the only purpose, or some people say, the main purpose? Number one, some say that the main purpose of marriage, or some even say the only purpose, is the bearing of children. While others say it's the main purpose, there's other reasons, but that's the main purpose. That's number one on the list. While others say, that it's the only purpose, that's it. And some fathers of the church actually have said that. Number two, some people's other fathers say, yes, the main purpose is the bearing of children. But bearing of children doesn't just mean have sexual relations, have a baby, have another baby, whatever. It means bearing children and then bringing them up in a spiritual way, in a proper way, not just to have them like a chicken. Number three, and, and um, others say that the main purpose of uh, marriage is the avoidance of fornication, so as not to fall into sexual passions. As a single person, if you can't hold yourself and live a life of virginity, then get married and some fathers say that's the main purpose, including St John Chrysostom, but we'll come to why he said that later, so, uh, next time. But the, the, the main thing is some fathers do say that. Actually, St Paul said that. Number four, mutual help and moral perfection. Other people say, and our fathers as well say, the main purpose of marriage, it's a, that, that it's a mystery, 
that the husband and wife get together, they become one, they help each other in their spiritual development so they can be saved. Husband helps the wife, the wife helps the husband. And number five, the enjoyment of pleasure is one of the purposes of marriage in the opinions of some fathers. So some fathers actually say, well, yes, there's this, there's avoidance of fornication, have children, etc., etc., all that. But another purpose of marriage is so that the couple can enjoy each other. The pleasure of each other in, in sexual ways as well. But none of them said that it's the first purpose. However, as we're going to see, there was one theologian who did say this, but we'll see why he said it. Now... Number 13, is avoiding conception allowed? Another matter which has divided the church is whether avoiding conception is a sin. If it's a sin, then obviously then we would go on with that and say, well, that means contraception is not allowed. In other words, the question is, are couples allowed to have sexual intercourse not for the purpose of children? Are they allowed to do family planning? Or can they have two, three children and say no more, but they still come together? That's the, that is something which is really dividing the church, that issue. A lot of different opinions, there's a lot of problems with, with that area. Now, for example, I'm going to read from the book Marriage of Spiritual Arena, Archimand Wright Vasilis Bakoyanis, what he writes on that. He says, is avoiding conception a sin? What do the holy canons say? And his answer, nothing. Not one synod, not even the regional synods, dealt with the matter. As a result, there are no canons or decisions. What does scripture tell us? Scripture is also silent concerning this matter. There is no evidence that clearly states that avoiding conceiving children is a mortal sin or even a sin at all. That's what he says. And there are many spiritual fathers, even in Greece, who agree with that. The truth of the matter is, I'm not saying I agree with this, but it's true that there are no canons. See, all the, all the, all the other things about fasting and abstinence, there are canons. I read them to you. How many days before communion, which days that couples shouldn't, shouldn't um, come together, things like that. There are canons for that. But there are no canons, the truth of the matter is, to do with this. So does that mean that this person's correct? Well, let's see what the opposite opinion is. Sorry, there's three groups. Now I'm going to go to the second group. Then there are others who say that perhaps it's allowed for certain circumstances for people to avoid having children. The health of the woman, they already have too many children... Maybe they can't cope with stress if they have another one. They've got no help because they live in a, a, a high-rise building in the middle of whatever, in Greece or in Moscow there. There's no one around to help them like it was in the old days with the village where there's everyone around to help. That's true. They're, 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 um, they're poor. They can't afford it. Mental health issues. Some people are mentally unwell. And if you add more pressure to them, they can become crazy and even hurt the children. 
the couple is having problems with and may divorce. So they say, well, if we're going to, there's a possibility that our marriage is not going well. Why should I leave myself free to have more children when, I, when we could separate and I'll be left on my own with a child? That's another issue there. So these spiritual fathers say, well, because of the circumstances, you can avoid conception. So a person would discuss that with their, with their spiritual father, unless, of course, they're independent and they go and ask the sex therapist and all the other dodos there, but that's up to them. But let's talk about Christian people now. So they discuss it, and the spiritual father might, from what I heard from in Greece a lot of times, they go, OK, but, you know, you get a penance. Some say, all right, you can commune once a month instead of every few weeks. Some say, well, it's not your fault, you can commune whenever you want. There's a, so many variations. Now, the third group, while others believe that it's not allowed because sexual relations within marriage are blessed only for the sake of having children. That's another group. The following is an example written by a traditional priest monk and what he wrote is pretty much what a lot of spiritual fathers also in Greece and some other places believe. As I said, it's divided. Some believe what I said above, some believe this. This is what he writes. The church cannot condescend any further and she considers sinful any means or method, whether natural or artificial, to prevent conception and avoid procreation. For they who employ such means prove that they consider sensual pleasure the sole purpose of intercourse. From this it becomes evident why the church does not permit holy communion to such individuals nor to anyone else who does not obey the apostles' teaching concerning self-control. 1 Corinthians 7.5 And to the sacred canons of the Orthodox Church. Now, as I said, there are people who have this exact view, that it's a sin, and if anyone does it, some, as you, or he says, they shouldn't commune at all, while others say they can commune but only four times a year or two times a year or things like that. Because sexual intercourse only has one purpose, that is to have children. Now then... He quotes all these canons, which were similar to the canons that I quoted before, regarding what? But I just said earlier there are no canons. Well, that's what the other fellow said, there's no canons. But, but this person's saying there are canons. But when I looked up all these canons, those canons are to do, with, to do with abstinence, to do with when couples should not come together. In none of those canyons does it actually mention anything about childbearing. And that's what people, what these canons don't mention. I went through those canons, unless I'm blind. Um, those who listen to the talk, if they know any different, I wouldn't mind to know. But uh, there are no canons. And as I said, some people actually quote the Holy Synod of Ch the Church of Greece in 1937 actually issued a statement and they said um, 
that that uh, couples should not uh, that concerning couples that avoided conceiving children. And the statement stressed that this was a sin. However, it did not suggest penance for those who were guilty of it. Now that's interesting. Why the Church of Greece made a statement and said it's a sin. But they never made any penance up. Why? Because they weren't able to quote any canons to say what the penance should be. However, now we come to a lot of the elders and a lot of holy fathers who actually say similar things. Elder Porfirios says that those who have avoided children, it's a sin. Elder Paisius said those who avoid children, it's a sin. So what's going on? And what I want to do is I want to dedicate a, ch a talk on this issue because it's an important issue. And I won't be able to answer the question tonight anyway because I wasn't going to touch on this, so therefore I didn't research this and I want to speak to more priests, I want to read more about it, I want to think about it more because I don't want to say something which then will become, I'll, I'll be responsible. But without a doubt that there are those who say you can and those who say you can't. There's no consensus. What's consensus mean? The way everyone agrees. And what makes it worse is that there's no canons. Like abortion, there's canons. Adultery, there's canons. I've, I read them all to you. Just not all of them, but I read quite a few of them. All these things, there's all canons and canons and canons and canons. But there's nothing for this issue. And that's it. That's where I was going to go on that. I was going to go on to the next point, which is to do with... Um, is sex in marriage somewhat, somewhat sinful? But how could I go on? Because perhaps I might not have a chance to do another talk. Who knows? Or someone else might not listen to another talk. And I came across something which I found disturbing and I will share it with you. It's to do with the pills and contraceptions. My conscience, but I never, I never said it publicly. Why? Because how can I, I, don't, I don't come here to give you my opinion. I try to, the best of my ability, to tell you what the church teaches. And if it is my opinion, I might, I might say, look, oh, that's what I believe. But I, I never would touch on this, this what I'm going to say now. My conscience always troubled me about the pill, the contraception pill, the, the, the normal one, which they say is not. For uh, not, it doesn't cause abortion, it just prevents pregnancy. And the other, and some other ones that they use, which are hormone based, I think. Anyway, so, I'm not talking about the condom, that's another one, just let's leave that. I'm talking about these things, which supposedly stop ovulation, which we're going to go through in a minute. 
Now, I was troubled and personally, I would tell people, when they ask me, I go, I don't like it. Something about it I don't like. I personally believe, how do we know that they don't cause abortions? How do we know that there's no conception happening, an early conception there, and there's a, like, a, like an abortion happening where a fertilised egg is expelled? No one would know. That was my feeling. But I never shared it with anyone except for those who came to me. I said, that's my opinion. I don't like it. There's something wrong about it, but I don't know, I don't know much about it. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I haven't found anything. But that's what my conscience tells me. And then, as I was researching this topic, I came across a website, which is epm.org. E for egg, P for Peter, M for Martha.org. That stands for Eternal Perspective Ministries. Now, this is a Protestant group. Now, some of you might say, why are you teaching us about Protestant or Unicumanist? I don't think so. Um, just like I, when I was doing the talk, Talk 61, on healings and all that outside the church, it was about Reiki, and I, was, I quoted there a statement made by the, by the Catholic bishops of America, where, because they've got hospitals, and they researched, and they said that at the end they, they banned that Reiki thing because they thought it, was not, uh, it wasn't medical and dangerous. So I read those things because they researched it. Now, this fellow here, Randy, I think it's Alcorn, is an American Protestant. He's an author and director of this particular group called Eternal Perspective Ministries, a non-profit Christian organisation dedicated to teaching an eternal viewpoint and helping the needy of the world. Eternal Perspective Ministries owns the royalties of his books, because he's written a lot of books, he's a, like a very popular author, and he gives 100% of all that to missions, famine, from famine relief, pro-life work and other ministries. This person is a pro-life person. Pro-life means he's against abortion. It's also interesting that in 2009, this particular person, Alcorn, that's how you say it, signed an ecumenical statement known as the Manhattan Declaration where evangelicals, Catholics and Orthodox got together and the declaration was that they do not, will not comply with rules and laws permitting abortion. They will not agree to same-sex marriage and other matters that go against their religious consciences. Now, I'm against ecumenism, as you know, and uh, so what do I think about this? Well, the main thing is that they don't do joint prayer. That's forbidden. It's forbidden to do joint prayer. But if they're going to get together and, and sign some documents to do with these issues, because they live in America, this, this was in America, obviously, uh, that's a different issue. But we don't pray with heterodox. It's forbidden by the canons of the church. So they got this and they signed it. So what did they, what was, sorry, what else was on there? It was um, the deterioration of and the war against marriage. That was another issue that they, that they talked about. The problem of divorce, 
the increase in acceptance of adultery as being okay, and the aversion towards childbearing in marriage, which we know is something that the feminists have brought about. Now, on his website, he talks about uh, all birth control pills available in the United States have three mechanisms. Number one, the pill inhibits ovulation, that is, reducing the likelihood of a woman producing an egg, or as they call it, ova. And yes, that's, people know that. Number two, the pill thickens cervical mucus. This makes it more difficult for sperm to travel through the cervix and into the uterus to reach an egg. That's, that's, that's stopping conception. So the first one stops, anyway, so we say the first one stops conception, the second one. The third one's the problem, where people don't know much. The pill changes the lining of the uterus. This makes it more difficult for a newly conceived human being to implant in the uterus because the uterus builds up blood. I don't know, we're going to get a pamphlet. 14, 15 mil, I think. But when people take the pill, it's only a few mil. The lining. When a woman doesn't get pregnant, that's shed, that's, what, that's what's meant by the period. But uh, the, the, the lining for a woman who doesn't take the pill is thicker. And that makes it easier for the egg to attach there a fertilised egg. The pill is designed so that when the first two mechanisms fail, the third mechanism decreases the likelihood of implantation. So, look, I'm not medical, so I might be saying words wrong, so forgive me. Anyway, when the fetus does not implant, the little fetus is expelled. In other words, the newly created person is aborted. If all three mechanisms fail, the result is pregnancy. Statistically, eight out of every hundred women on the pill become pregnant. Now, someone can say he's a Protestant, he's pro-life, he's going to say that. And I would not even have read it because I don't know whether he's, what he's saying. He's written a book. By the way, the book has got all these endorsements from a lot of gynaecologists, obstetricians, doctors um, as well. So that was interesting, but I'll still be a bit scared to read it. Now, Amer there's another group called American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. They said the same thing. The first two mechanisms are contraceptive. The third is abortive. This means the tiny developing baby, the embryo, cannot attach to the uterine lining and dies, which is very early, which is a very early abortion. Even so, they define this as preventing pregnancy. In the medical world, they say, these are ordinary pills. They go, this, is, this pill prevents pregnancy. Now, this Protestant fellow wrote a book He's saying, no, it doesn't just prevent, it can also make an abortion. Now, this group, which are pro-life, someone can say, well, they're going to fudge it, they're going to make it in a way to make it um, uh, their way. Anyway, let's just go on, one more paragraph. Some forms of contraception, specifically the 
intrauterine device, IUD, Norplant, and certain low-dose oral contraceptives often do not prevent conception, but prevent implantation of a fertilised ovum. This result is an early abortion. So they're not just going to the pills. These people are saying all these other things that they use. I don't know, I don't know what they are. But there's IUD, whatever that is, Norplant, certain... What's that, Norplant? Oh, sorry? Implant, whatever. And certain low-dose oral contraceptives. They do not prevent conception, but prevent implantation. So they can work the first level, which we said before. The second level, that's contraceptive. But then if that doesn't work, the third level is, that these things help, is it doesn't allow a fertilised egg to implant onto the, into the uterus. Now... The doctors, to get around this now, some of them are saying, especially the medical people, they're saying, no, the definition is that it's not really an embryo if it doesn't attach to the uterus. Just like before they say, it's not a baby until it's born. Well, before it was, it's not a baby till three months, then it's not a baby till six months, now it's not a baby unless it takes breath outside. Uh, the result is an early abortion, the killing of an ordinary or of, of an already conceived individual. Tragically, many women are not told this by their physicians and therefore do not make an informed decision about which contraceptive to use. That's from them. Now, people can say they're pro-life. The other guy's Protestant, he's pro-life. Maybe, okay, these are people that are, but by the way, these are obstetricians and gynaecologists, but nevertheless, people can say that was, a, that was 1999. People can say that still I don't trust them. Now, we come to the last part, which people aren't going to be very happy, especially if they take these things. The only reason I'm presenting this is because the second group, which is the obstetrician gynecologist, that one, but this is the one that made me even more. I say, no, now, now I've got the ammunition. I've, I, I, now I want to do this. It's a statement by Dr James Trussell. Or Trussell, Trussell, I think. Now, Dr James Trussell is a pro-abortion individual. He's the director of the Office of Population Research at Princeton University, and considered to be one of the world's top authorities on the morning after pill. He made a statement about the what's called ECPs. ECPs means emergency contraception pills. Now, some of you might think that that means the abortion pills. We'll come to that in a minute. In an academic review dated February 2013, co-authored with Dr Elizabeth G. Raymond. I don't know who all these people are. Anyway, he's a senior fellow at the Gutmacher Institute, a main source of information for planned parenthood. Planned parenthood should be more, um, you've got to have an abortion. That's, that's, that's planned. But anyway, they say it's planned, but as soon as you go in there, they... they they've, push you to do an abortion. He also serves on the National Medical Committee for Planned Parenthood Federation of America and he sits on the board of the 
NARAL, N-A-R-A-L, Pro-Choice American Foundation. So this person is interesting that he's, um, he's not like the others that are pro-life. He's actually pro-choice and pro-abortion. In his opinion, if people want an abortion, that, and he's also part of the, op, the Office of Population. But before we go on to his statement, which people here have to listen to and all those that will listen to the talk, I have to explain, which I didn't understand myself, the, the difference between emergency contraception pills and the abortion pills. They're two different things. Now, the emergency contraception pills, the ECPs, also known as Plan B or the morning after pill, which I got confused because I thought the morning after pill is a pill which causes abortion. But according to these people, that's a different medication. That, that, that's not. There, there's two types of pill. There's the emergency contraception pills and then there's the medical abortion pill, which is known as the RU486. That's called medical abortion. A woman... Now, the, the emergency contraception pills prevent a pregnancy within five days of unprotected sex, while the abortion pill ends pregnancies in the first nine week, weeks. So... Really, there's three. There's the pill that people take all the time. Then there's the pill, which is called the, this emergency contraception pill, which is meant to be to stop conception. And then there's this other one, which is the RU486, which causes an abortion. Okay, let's now go on to the statement of Dr. James Trussell, the pro-abortionist and whatever. He says... At least he's honest in one thing. He says, to, quote, To make an informed choice, women must know that ECPs, emergency contraceptive pills, like all regular hormonal contraceptives, such as birth control pill, the implant, implanton, whatever, the vaginal ring, nuva ring, the Evra patch, and the injectable depot provera, provera, whatever, and even breastfeeding, I don't understand the breastfeeding part, but we'll have to look at that, prevent pregnancy primarily by delaying or inhibiting ovulation and inhibiting fertilisation, but it is not scientifically possible to definitely rule out that a, a method may inhibit implantation of a fertilised egg in the endometrium. So this man is actually saying that you can't rule out that those who take... He's not talking about the, the, the abortion pill. He's talking about ordinary contraception and the emergency contraception pills, which are not... They're meant to avoid conception. But he's saying it can actually also cause an abortion because it's not allowing a fertilised egg to attach to the uterus and therefore women, he said, should know that. 
they, these, all these pro-life people have put this on their websites because they've got now someone who's pro-choice, who's actually, uh, where are we here? One of the world's top authorities on the morning after pill. Now, I spoke to one doctor and she said that, in her opinion, ECPs, emergency contraception pills, is an abort, is an abortifacient, whatever they would say. Um, but here they're saying that's, that's um, no, it prevents pregnancy in the first five days after unprotected sex. The one which is the abortion is the RU486, and there's another couple different names, whatever. So, women need, and men, but women need to investigate these, I've got a pamphlet here of what, they, what they've got, they explain it there, and look at that, a lot of these devices that you could think is avoiding conception could be causing, in some cases, an abortion. Did I explain it all right or did, was it a bit difficult? On that pamphlet it actually says that they had to decrease the level, the, the levels in these medications of the oestrogen I think they put in there because it was causing heart attacks and strokes to, to women. Not, they're not, they're not, I, I don't think they're very healthy things. Now, as I said, Personally, I had a feeling that there was something wrong, but I could not say that publicly because I don't just say things like that. That's silly. That's, that's irresponsible. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, number 15, is sex in marriage somewhat sinful? There are some fathers of the church who say that sex is allowed, but there's a little bit of sin involved, and others like St. Caesarius of Nazianzus, who taught that sexual relations within marriage and the pleasure associated with it are free from all sin and blame. That sexual relations within marriage are blessed. That's what he said. But there are others who argue that sex is a result of sin and that pleasure associated with it is sinful. And that's some traditional clergy, some, uh, um, some monastics, obviously. So this is, again, what I'm trying to say. There's all these issues where people are confused. And that causes disturbance in married people's lives. Well, if it's sinful, then is that why the church doesn't allow us to commune without... You have to do all these abstinences. Is that why? Is it actually... A, is, is it dirty? Let me read some blasphemy to you. Unfortunately, I have to do it because uh, it's... Um, so that people can know, so they can be aware because you might come across a book or some article 
written by these blasphemers and you've got to know what to do with them, which is to throw them away. Now, one clergyman even went so far as to write words to the effect of the following. He says, traces of misogamy, I think that's how you say it, misogamy means the hatred of marriage, hatred of the body and fear of sexuality can be found in the writings of the Apostle Paul. And Philo of Alexandria, I don't know who that is, but also in the writings of such church fathers as Gregory of Nyssa, John of Damascus, Maximus the Confessor, and other church fathers. Then he goes on somewhere else and he says, the ascetic fathers believe that sex in marriage is somewhat sinful. And he goes on and on, he's sarcastic, and he goes, I'm telling you, it, it, it was something that made me sick. like a married person. This, this same person is very interesting that he also said that there should be a book written on sexual matters, but they're not to be written by monastics and the bishops shouldn't get involved because they're monastics, so the bishops can't get involved. It should be written by the priests, married priests, and their presbyteras, their matushkas. And I often think, is that the same matushkas that wear the jeans and the makeup? that send their children to Catholic schools who don't even know what's orthodox and what's not. As I said, there's some holy priests' wives. Holy. Anyway, so this person's saying that that's who should write the book. And then he says, but then again, we probably wouldn't be allowed because we've got to get the blessing of the bishops and the bishops are monastics and monastics won't want that, so therefore we can't write it. But yet he wrote a whole book full of blasphemy and no one done anything to him. The ascetic fathers believe that sex in marriage is somewhat sinful. And there's some truth to that for some, yes. I'll read you one. St. Bede, or Venerable Bede, was an English monk who lived in 672 to 735. The following is from his writings. He says, For when the Apostle Paul said, if they cannot contain themselves, if they can't hold themselves sexually, let them marry. And then he said after that, straight away he goes, I speak this by permission and not of commandment. St. Bede says, this concession makes it lawful, yet not good. So when he spoke of permission, when St. Paul said, I give permission for someone to get married, but it's not a commandment, he indicated that it was not blameless. That's not the explanation. The, 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 the saint did not understand at when, I don't know, whatever. He did not understand what is meant. St. Paul explains it because St. John Christum tells us what St. Paul meant. St. John Christum says what he means is, uh, I say this as a concession, as a permission. That you can get married and have sexual relations if you can't hold yourself but I prefer you to be like me, single, because that's the better life. But if you can't do that, 
get married. Nowhere did he say that it's sinful. He says, I've got to tell you, this is the better life, but if you want, you still get married and it's still good. Not sinful. But then you might say, well, why did St. Bede say that? And some other church fathers too. Why did they say that for? Well, a lot of the problem began with someone called St. Augustine, who's a Western saint but recognised by us now as well. Now, this, this saint, he said that he considered sex and sexual desire as the channel. See, this is a bit theological. I'll read it. He considered sex and sexual desire as the channel through which the guilt for the original sin of Adam was transmitted to Adam's descendants. So how can I explain that? So every time when a couple has sexual intercourse, they conceive a baby, but that baby will, take, will, will, will inherit the original sin, which is, yes, that, that, that's correct. But because it needs sex to do that, it means that sex must be bad to some degree. Marriage, therefore, was itself sinful inasmuch as it assumes sexual relations. So marriage, he said, is somewhat sinful because they're going to have sex and could be justified only through childbirth. He says, okay, they're going to have sex, it's not good, but if they have children, then in a way they're forgiven. That is to say, if conception of a child is not the immediate ex and exclusive purpose of a specific sexual encounter between a husband and wife, then they must abstain. So if a husband and wife want to come together, but they don't want to have children at that time, then they shouldn't come together. That's what St. Augustine said. Another way of saying it is that sex equals sin, basically that's what he's saying, and that childbirth is the only way to relieve the guilt. And this would explain the Roman Catholic Church's stance on contraception. You don't take, you can't take contraception because that means you're going to have sex, not for children. And according to St. Augustine, that's a sin. That's where they got that from. Now, St. Augustine's teaching influenced the Catholic Church significantly, but also it did come over to the East to the Orthodox where some of them were influenced as well. But St. Augustine still recognises a church father. Now, some of you might ask, well, how can that be if you made a mistake? Because St. Augustine did not push. He theologised. Theologised means that's, he had that thought, he wrote it down, others then took it and made it into like a teaching. I might say something wrong tonight. But it doesn't mean that I'm a heretic or whatever because I said that. I'm a heretic if, after I'm told that that's wrong, I persist. There are some fathers and theologians in the church, both past and present, who believe that sex is reluctantly tolerated for the absolute purpose of procreation. Now, we come to this important question. Why is this so? Why is there such a difference? How does this happen? Why is there such a difference of opinions amongst the Holy Fathers, the saints, elders, spiritual fathers, theologians, regarding 
this particular topic. Or not just this topic, all these topics I mentioned today. Topics include the purpose of marriage, the marital relations, the abstinence, the fasting, avoiding conception, contraception, etc. Sometimes there are even differences in one father. So one father might, in one of his works, say one thing, and then later on he says another thing. Before I answer that, I think we should look at a couple of things which will help you understand. Because people get scandalised and go, I don't understand how that Holy Father said that, that Holy Father said that, but it's different. Some people have the mentality that if a, if, if a saint says something, then it must be true. For example, when people read the, the, the books of Elder Paisios, they see there that he says that you must not accept the card with the 666 and all these things. And someone rang me up about that. And then I said to that person, but then we, when we read Father John Christiankin's letters, he was telling the people in Russia that to accept the card. What's the difference? We have to get out of our heads this idea that a saint is without fault, that they cannot make mistakes. This is dangerous. This is, the this is very bad. See, that's what happened in the Western Church. Saint Augustine was a great father. If you read his life of what he did, because he was, he was the bishop there somewhere in North Africa, Hippo, I think it was called, and the, the, the heresies that he fought, the things that he did, like, what a great life. One of the, they, they, class, they look at him as a, very, as a great father. But where they went wrong is to actually believe that everything he says is correct. We have people in the Orthodox Church that go, oh, if that saint says it, it's correct because he's a saint. This is wrong, and this is what led the Roman church to get to the stage where they elevate one person as being without fault, which is the Pope. They first had this mentality earlier on, St. Augustine or some saint, he's, that's it, he, he's the entire, he's the truth. So therefore, slowly, slowly, it wasn't hard for them to get to the stage to say the Pope is the authority the Pope is without fault. The Pope is, is the truth. While in the Orthodox Church, we don't have that. We have the, the authority of the ecumenical councils and, the, and other councils and canons of saints, which I'm going to read to you soon. That's the authority. And that's why I said last time, we never can, we'll never be able to join with them because they near, in their um, heads they will never give up that person, the Pope, as being the supreme rule of the authority. We, can, we must never say that. Oh, that saint did miracles. He's without fault. Whatever he says is from God. 
because as we've just read tonight, even some of our own saints, some of them said some things that weren't really correct. St. Augustine, not only that, he also theologised, that's the correct word, on the Holy Trinity. He had some, some, some thoughts there on that. And they took that, and that's where they came out with the, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, they changed the creed. That's from St. Augustine's theology. But he, that's not uh, correct. But why? St. Augustine said it. The contradiction in the 666, by the way, is that, I don't know when Father John wrote that letter, but the church back in those days had no authority in Russia. The government did what they want. And Father John said, that's it, they're going to bring this card out. It's not a betrayal. A betrayal is when you deny Christ. You're not going to betray Christ by having a card. So he said to passport, I think it was, to take it. Elder Paisius lived in Greece. The church in Greece is very strong. The government, a lot of times, is scared of the church because it's very powerful still. And they hadn't passed the law yet. And Elder Paisius said, stand up, don't take it. Let's beat this law, not to have it. But what happens if they did introduce, I don't even know if they did, but let's just say, because I, 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 don't, I, I don't follow that, but let's just say, what happens if they did introduce it? It was done. That's it. Done deal. Do you think that Elder Paisus would tell the people not to accept the card and then just sit there and starve? When he was such a man of discernment, there was still a chance that they could actually not get it passed. People have to understand when they read things. And anyway, the whole thing is that um, a saint is not the absolute truth. Nor did he, he would never have wanted that of himself. No saint wanted that. And actually, St. Augustine, before he died, in, or I think was close to it, in his book, in his writings there, one of the last things that he wrote was this is what he wrote a prayer because St. Augustine always humbly submitted his reflections to the judgment of the church whatever he wrote he gave it to the church and this is what he wrote O Lord God the one God God the Trinity, whatever I have said in these books that is of yours, may they acknowledge who are yours, meaning the church. If there is anything of my own that comes from me, which is wrong in other words, may it be pardoned both by you and by those who are yours. Amin, in other words, the church. St. Fortius wrote the following about St. Augustine. St. Fortius, of course, lived 400 years after him. But St. Fortius the Great knew that because of Augustine's theology that they changed the creed. This is at a time when the church was still together. 
And Saint Fortius the Great said, knowing that some of the fathers and doctors, meaning theologians, have deviated from the faith in certain dogmas, we do not receive as doctrine those matters which they have deviated, but we no less continue to extend the hand of friendship to those men. Saint Fortius the Great says, there are fathers of the church, doctors of the church, theologians, who have strayed in certain matters of the faith, in certain dogmas. We do not accept those dogmas that they strayed in, but but we no no less continue to extend the hand of friendship to those men. We still have those people in communion or even recognise them as saints as long as they didn't push their heresy. Now, some others, like Origen, he had some, he theologised there that Christ is full of, I think, I hope, I hope I'm getting it right because I've got mixed up with him, that Christ is love, God is love. How can he condemn people? How can he put people, how can he allow people to go to hell when he's full of love? He theologised. That was his thoughts about it. He contemplated it. He wrote it down. The church reacted to that and said, no. That's not correct because it's an actual dogma that there will be, you know, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. And the church has these dogmas that there is a hell and, and things like that. What did he do? Did he submit humbly like St. Augustine and say, I believe whatever the church believes? No, he persisted as many of the other heretics did. He persisted in his heresy and therefore he was anathematised by the fifth, I think, ecumenical council, him and his followers. The church doesn't, that's what these zealots believe, that as soon as someone says a mistake, straight away, anathema, oh, he's cut off, oh, he's gone. Oh, all, all that bishop, that patriarch, oh, he prayed with a heretic, he said something wrong, that's it, finished, he's lost, the whole church is lost, they're all gone, we are, we are the church. Like recently there's some events that happened like that. But straight away, it's gone. Now, these people in question, of course, are true heretics because the church is going against them for their ecumenism, I'll tell you another one. There was an example of a bishop who theologised. He wrote something and he theologised about the sinlessness of Christ. And somehow, in his blindness, he wrote that, that because Christ was God, man, that he had inclination towards sin, something like that. What he did was that he actually got it read to all the churches. Now, who is this person? doesn't matter. Where is he from? What church? When did it happen? It happened. A few years ago, whatever. And 
theologians, manathos, bishops, other people, priests, got a hand, got their hands on this sermon of his, analysed it, and said, this is heresy. Actually, they said, this is even worse because this person is actually preaching something that not even Arius preached. Because Arius didn't say that Christ had sinned. He said Christ is human. This person actually said that Christ was inclined or something to sin. And they actually said that, he's, that this person is a heresiarch, someone who, who, um, makes, who made up his own heresy. The church went against him. A lot of people went against him. What did he do? Nothing. He kept on going. Did he repent? No. He went on television and he said it again. And again, and again, and again, and again. When he would go to Manathos, as soon as the fathers knew he was coming, you know, you know, the people that have been there, they've got these big medieval doors. As soon as they heard he was coming, creep, bang, close the door. Except for a couple of monasteries which are modernist. The rest didn't want him. You see? So, is he deserved of the anathema? Yes, but the church is not doing it. He might even die, if he hasn't already, let's just say, he might even die without having repented. And he might even get a beautiful funeral, an orthodox funeral. But um, sometimes the church doesn't act on earth, but it will act in the next life where the person will be cut off. Also, sometimes they do future synods, like they did with some of these heretics. They might have done a synod 100, 200 years later and then refer back to these other ones that were around. They say anathema to that, anathema to that. They're cut off. So we've got to be careful in the way that we think. So that explains why some holy fathers have some views which are not correct, nothing to be alarmed of. They don't have to go like that priest that went crazy and started putting them down and, call, and saying all these things. We look at what all the Holy Fathers say that they agree with, especially when it's in council ecumenical councils that's accepted by the whole church and that's what we're going to discuss after your refreshment break. Go. What's becoming more and more popular now and known is the life of Elder Joseph the Hesychist, which there's a book written by Elder Ephraim of Arizona then. The book, My Elder Joseph the Hesychist. And that elder, people are reading his life and wonderful and the visions and the, the levels that he reached of spirituality. And yet, when we read in the life, we notice things which are strange. And yet this person had reached such a high level where it says here, a man came to visit him 
Father Erasmus was his name, he went and, and, and confided his difficulties and diseases to the elder. And as soon as, Yeronda, as soon as the elder heard his problems, he felt sorry for him and told him, stay here and I can help you. Father Erasmus had a small suitcase with him. When Yeronda saw it, he asked him, what do you have in there? Medications. Listen, you will become well immediately if you, if you only believe that God is able to cure you. Throw all those medications and bottles and injections down the cliff. He said, he said this to him because he could see that he was attracted to his medications. But the elder, but elder, I find that difficult to do, Father Erasmus replied. Throw them all out and take what I give you and you will get well. But elder, if I don't take the medications, I will die. I'll tell you what you need to take and you'll get well. What should I take? Eat salted, uncleaned sardines. And instead of eating ten times a daily, you will eat only once a day. Despite Father Erasmus's reasonable objections, the elder emphasised and said, you must put all your trust in God. You have to abandon your worldly medical knowledge and follow faith. And if I die, then the elder replied, we have come here to die, don't be afraid. But I can't. Eh, what, what else can I tell you? Either listen to me or go somewhere else in the morning. But Yerunda, you're the one who can make me get well. I told you, staying here requires two things, throwing out all your medications and eating once a day. But Yerunda, that's impossible. Fine, as you wish, then go, leave. This is a holy person, but yet he's going against the, the fact that um, God blessed doctors. And yet he saw visions... The, he, he experienced levels of, of spirituality that we can't even imagine. But how does he have that type of mentality? How does he, how does he say that? And another one, this is, by, this is Elder Frem now, when he was there. A couple of years later, I had, a, I had a cavity in one of my molars. The pain was absolutely unbearable. I said to the elder, let me go, have it removed. No, you'll be patient. May it be blessed. I went to go pray, but the pain went right to my brain. I felt like jumping out the window. Elder, this pain is going to make me lose my mind. It's unbearable. The elder said, endure, patience till death. May it be blessed, elder, patience. Okay. Yera, uh, then the uh, monk Arsenios, who was a co-struggler with Elder Joseph, saw how much I was suffering and interceded for me he went up to the elder and said, Elder, you never had a toothache to know how, hard it, how much it hurts. If you had one, then you'd know. Indeed, the elder never had any problems with his teeth and had no idea how excruciating that pain was, like how much of tooth pain. How much does it hurt? How much, said um, Monk Arsenios, do you realise that the pain goes straight up your head to your brain? You should ask me since I know what I'm saying and let him go to have it removed. Then the elder said again, let him be patient. My dear, my, my dear Panagia, which is Holy Virgin, my most holy, my head was pounding, said Elder Ephraim. And the searing pain went through all my nerves and was excruciating. Finally, since monk Arsenius kept interceding for me, the elder said to me, all right, 
go to Father Artemios, which is like a, some monk there on the mountain, who's a dentist, and have him pull it out with some pliers. Now, you say to yourself, but how? How is this possible? He's a saint. Now, some people who have no idea of spiritual matters can say, if Elder Joseph saw visions, if Elder Joseph experienced the uncreated light, that means that we shouldn't go to doctors. Doctors are evil. People can make a whole dogma from that, the whole teaching. Shortly before the elders repose, Elder Ephraim said, I fell ill. Out of obedience, I wasn't planning on seeing a doctor since I thought the elder disapproved of doctors. So what's the point in going? When I told him about my illness anyway, he said to me, you're a weak person, you need to see doctors. Don't pay attention to what I did and what I used to believe. If necessary, you can even take medicine. This is one lesson that took me years to learn. Now that I'm old, I realise that concessions are necessary. As wise Socrates said, I grow old learning something new every day. Why did he change? Because he read the life of Saint Nectarius, as we did here a few months ago. And there, Elder Joseph read that Saint Nectarius would write letters continually to his nuns that were on Aegina while he was still, part of, still teaching at the school in Athens. And he would write to the nuns and send medicine, tonics, and he was very concerned for his nuns' health. When, Yerunda, when Elder Joseph read this, he realised he made a mistake. He said, well, if a great saint like Saint Nectarius did that, see, he had humility, but he was misguided in that area. But he still saw the uncreated light, but he's still there. Yes, that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that no saint is without fault. He, in one of his letters, Elder Joseph wrote to someone and said, read if you want the ecclesiastical history by Miletius of Athens and see how many teachers such as Origen and thousands of others were at first great luminaries of the church. He was a great father, Origen, at first. And he wrote a lot of things, and people still use his writings, by the way. Possessing extensive learning. They thought, however, that their scholarly learning was sufficient. Thousands were lost and anathematised by the holy councils, of which they had previously been champions. Read and you will see. When I read this, it was, makes you sh um, shock. What he's trying to say is that some fathers that were part of an ecumenical council, and there they, dis they said that, the, for example, the mother of God, whoever doesn't, oh, I've got it coming up now, whoever doesn't confess that the mother of God is, the, is the Mary's Theotokos, anathema, they later on fell into that heresy 
that they had anathematized in that council. So they fell under the same anathema that they themselves pronounced. They fell into the same heresy that they themselves pronounced. Why? But how can that be? Because the absolute authority is the councils of the church. And one more example is the, is the example of St. Cure of Alexandria. I love this example. But I've read, I've read a lot of when you read Lives of Saints, you, you notice and you say, this saint did this, this, this. Then all of a sudden you see later on that they did these wrong things and you go, well, why'd that happen? St. Kirill was the nephew of Patriarch Theophilus of Alexandria. And Patriarch Theophilus was an enemy of St. John Chrysostom. And St. Kirill, as you read in the book that we wrote here, this is the Curse Group book, put together, St. Kirill also hated St. John Chrysostom because his uncle hated him. Um, he believed his uncle, but his uncle hated St. John Chrysostom because he was jealous, because St. John Chrysostom was virtuous, and Theophilus was not virtuous. Theophilus was patriot of Alexandria, St. John Chrysostom was patriot of Constantinople. St. Kirill at the time was a priest monk. This is St. Kirill of Alexandria, one of the greatest holy fathers of the Orthodox Church. The Empress of Constantinople called Theophilus over and said, I want you to do a synod and I want you to defrock that man, St. John Chrysostom. I don't like him, he puts me down, he talks about me, except that I'm worldly, whatever, whatever, whatever. I want him... That. And he came over together with St. Kirill and they formed this synod and he participated in it and had St. John Chrysostom defrocked and exiled and he died a few years later, I don't know when, in 404, I thought it was 407, anyway, AD. St. John Chrysostom reposed, sorry, the, 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 the synod took place in 404 and St. John Chrysostom died in exile in 407. Now, the Third Ecumenical Council was held in 431. This is about 24 years later of the death of St. John Chrysostom. And who was the champion of the Third Ecumenical Council? St. Kirill of Alexandria, who was now patriarch. His uncle died, he became patriarch. So, St. Kirill formulated the dogma of regarding the Mother of God, that she is Theotokos, that she conceived God, the two natures, God and man, while Nestorius, the patriarch of Constantinople then, was saying heresies. And St. Kiru was the champion of that council, together with St. Celestine, if I remember right, of Rome, Pope of Rome. Maybe I, might, may, I could get it messed up, that doesn't matter, anyway. The Mother of God appeared with St. John Chrysostom to St. Kirill and said the following. The Mother of God said to St. John Chrysostom, Forgive him for my sake, for he has laboured greatly for my honour and has glorified me among the people by calling me the Theotokos. I asked the question, 
how can this person, who is the champion of the third, when it comes to do with the mother of God, how can he have this mistake if he was enlightened to know how to formulate this dogma? Why wouldn't he be enlightened to know that his uncle was a fool and that all this was slander and that St John Chrysostom wasn't bad? But no, instead, this hate that he had for St John Chrysostom lasted for so many years. 431 was the council. They defrocked in 404. That's 27 years and who knows how many years before that. Like 30 years just or more that this person the greatest defender of the mother of God wasn't, didn't know that he, that he was wrong. Why? Why did God allow that? Why didn't God enlighten him like God enlightened him for the, to go against Nestorius? And the answer is so that we know that the church is not made up of popes so that we know that only the church in, in, in the ecumenical councils and, and, and the other, that what they confirm, is the authority and absolute truth. And that's why these saints oftentimes is allowed so that they themselves don't fall proud but that said people can understand that the Orthodox Church does not believe in popes, does not believe that one person has the right to be and say, I am the truth, I am the absolute truth, I am the authority. And you'll notice this in, in a lot of the lives of saints if you read them. So let's get that out of our heads. St. Vincent of Lorenz states that an orthodox teaching is something that, that which is believed everywhere, always, by all. In other words, let us embrace the faith that is believed and upheld everywhere, always and by all. That orthodox teaching is what's believed by all, everywhere and at all times. And this is sealed in the ecumenical councils and those other councils which, the, which they confirmed. Now... Oh, after the vision, he became... He be, sorry. After the vision, St Kirill became the greatest defender of St John Chrysostom and things like that. So, yes, obviously, he, was, he, um, he, had, he had humility... But he had fallen into that into that mistake, not that he did it willfully, but yet one of the greatest fathers in the church. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be anathema. And St. Kirill's, by the way, his anathema was, if anyone does not confess that Emmanuel, meaning Christ, is truly God, and therefore 
that the Holy Virgin is the Theotokos, for she gave birth in the flesh, the word of God become flesh, let him be anathema, that is, separated from the church. Now, some of you might ask, what does anathema mean? In the curse group book that we put together, I have two pages there. One, an explanation of anathema by St John, Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco, and the other one is an explanation of the anathema by St Theophan the Recluse. I think I've covered it. I think you know... Um, um, I haven't got time now for that. We might do another time. Uh, you read it in there. It's um, those who... They anathematise those who stubbornly persist in their heresy, as you'll see in a minute. Now... The church, we are obliged to follow what the canons say. Now, the canons of the church are the following. We have the canons of the seven ecumenical councils. We have the rules issued by certain local or regional councils which later received universal acceptance. For example, the Council of Ancura, Council of Gangra, the Council of Antioch. There's a few of them. Then we have another group of things, the other canons of some fathers. That is, a collection of advice and guidelines issued by individual fathers of the church and endorsed by the councils, by the ecumenical. So, yes, these ones will be universally accepted, which is, for example, the, can the canons of St. Athanasius the, uh, the Great, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Basil the Great, St. John the Fastest, St. Carol of Alexandria, quite a few of them. And the other authority is the 85 apostolic canons which received universal acceptance at the 6th Ecumenical Council. These canons were being used by the Christians in Antioch and then the uh, council said, yes, we will accept them as being apostolic canons and they were recognised. Now, at those councils, as I said, when someone didn't listen, they were uh, anathematised. Now, one of those councils was the Council of Gangra. I think that's how you say it. So these are all unfamiliar names to me. But Now, this council is very interesting. This council was held in 340. It was a regional council. It was like a council that was somewhere there in Asia Minor in 340, 15 years after the first ecumenical council. It was not an ecumenical council. It was a council that was held specifically for that area, the bishops, 13 bishops got together because they had a problem. And the problem that they had was with a certain bishop named Ephstathios and his disciples. Now, these, this, these, this, these people held and taught heretical things. Ephstathios led, he was a very strict ascetic. He led a, a quite an ascetical life which led him to fall into illogical and heretical views regarding marriage. The council anathematised his teachings and also though him and those who followed him because they wouldn't repent. 
what were these teachings? What were they teaching? Why did it get to the stage that the, 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 the this council had to be called together and anathematise this bishop and his followers? It's very, very um, interesting. And remember, this council was later on accepted as universal, meaning it was accepted as... Um, as an authority, it was universal accepted. And that was in the Sixth Ecumenical Council, like 300 years later, roundabout. But they said, look, this council, we accept it as being uh, binding on all Orthodox Christians. The decisions are correct regarding marriage and things like that. What's the first canon say of that count? It says, if anyone shall despise marriage or despise and condemn a woman who sleeps with her own husband, even though she is a believer and pious, as though she could not enter the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom let him be anathema. So this Evstathios was teaching people that a woman who was married and was having sexual relations with her husband, that she can't be saved because she's having sex with her husband. And they said, whoever believes that, anathema, cut off from the church. So it was quite serious of what had happened in that area. The interpretation in the Rada says, just as the Manichees, I think they say, earlier, and other heretics had spoken evil of lawful marriage, so did the disciples of vile Eustathios later. Now the Manichees, just so that you know, were the followers of a self-proclaimed prophet called Mani, and that he lived in the third century. He preached a strict asceticism to the point that marriage was dirty because you have sex. The Apostle Paul says the council, had earlier prophesied about these heretics by saying in 1 Timothy 4, chapter 4, 1 to 3, it says, St. Paul actually made a prophecy 300 years before and said, in latter times, some will fall away from the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. That means their conscience are dead. They are self-deceived, in other words. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So the fathers go on and say, for this reason, the present canon anathematizes such persons who condemn marriage and despise a Christian and pious wife as unclean who sleeps with her Christian husband, alleging that on account of sexual relations she can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how fanatical they were. So that canon actually shows that the church does not consider sexual relations as being unclean or that it doesn't allow someone to be saved. Canon 2 of the same council says, if anyone criticise adversely a person eating meat with reverence and faith 
as though he had no hope of partaking, let him be anathema. Now you might say, what's meat got to do with marriage? I want to show you their madness. The apostle, the interpretation as written by the, like some of the interpreters in the Rada says, the apostle Paul also prophesied that this would be proclaimed by the supporters of Astathios, who criticised negatively those who eat meat. Remember what St. Paul, Paul wrote to Timothy? That they would make people not eat things and all that. For he says, St. Paul says, following the above passage, to abstain from foods which God has created to be partaken of. For this reason, the present canon anathematizes such persons who condemn a person who eats meat with enjoyment and faith and who declare that he has no hope of salvation because he eats it. You might say, but monastics don't eat meat. Well, a lot of them don't. Yeah, but they don't say that those who do aren't, are, are going to go to hell. That's something that they do for ascetical reasons. But they don't say we're not going to eat meat because meat's evil. These people, that's what they were saying. That meat is evil. Again, monastic spirit, because if Stathis was an ascetic, and he lost it, and he went. But what happened was, when he was told, hey, this is wrong what you're saying, he persisted, and that's why he was anathematised. The next one. If anyone discriminates against a married priest on the ground that he should not partake of the offering when that presbyter is conducting the liturgy, let him be anathema. In other words, in interpretation, the present canon anathematizes the Estathians, the followers of Estathios, and all the rest who discriminate and are inclined to avoid partaking of Holy Communion from a married priest because such a priest should not serve liturgy because he's married. And what does that mean if he's married? That means he's having sexual intercourse with his wife, which means that he's not worthy to serve as a priest because sex is bad. Council of Gangra, Canon 9. If anyone shall remain virgin or observe chastity, abstaining from marriage because he abhors it as if he had become an anchorite and not on account of the beauty and wholeness of virginity itself, let him be anathema. Interpretation. Virginity and chastity are a good thing, as we just read earlier on. True, enough. But only when they are practised for the sake of the good itself and for the sanctification resulting from them. If, however, anyone remains a virgin or practices sexual restraint, abstinence, not for this reason, but because he hates marriage, or in other words, despises it or is repulsed by it, as being unclean and polluted, as did the Estathians, he is anathematized by the present canon. So these people went as far as to say that virginity is the only way and anyone that has sex, they're dirty, they can't be saved, that's that, and I'm not going to get married, I'm not going to, because I, I, I want to live a life of virginity or abstinence. And the reason why I wanted to... So you might say, but the monastics, doesn't that mean the monastics? They, but they don't say that... You see, it says here, you can remain a virgin, you can, or you can remain have sexual abstinence, 
but not because you think that marriage is repulsive, filthy, disgusting, but because you want to use it as a way of asceticism to come closer to God. That's your thing. So it says here, the practice of even the highest Christian virtues, such as the preservation of virginity, if it does not arise from a worthy motive, is only deserving of the penalty of anathema. If it doesn't come from the right reason, as we heard today in the Paraclesis of St. Xenia, the ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. The ten of them were virgins, but five were foolish. Why were they foolish? Why, when they came and knocked on the door, afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And Christ answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And people say, but how's that? They were virgins. Virgins physically, but not virgins spiritually. Not enough to be a physical virgin, not enough just to do sexual restraint. But you have to also acquire the grace of God and humility and not look down at others. And you've got to practice the commandments. Another Bible quote, which is very nice. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not enough to do virginity, not enough to do miracles. There has to be spiritual life. The acquisition of the Holy Spirit, as we said in talk 44, the aim of the Christian life, according to St. Seraphim. Elder Paisios on this explains what's the true definition of chastity. It's not just physical, I'm not going to have sex, that's it. It says here, the heart has to be purified. Man must acquire spiritual chastity. That is, sincerity, honesty, selflessness, humility, goodness, forbearance, sacrifice. This is how a man becomes akin to God, like God, and how divine grace comes to dwell in him. When someone has physical chastity but lacks spiritual chastity, God cannot dwell in him because he harbours, because he has in him cunning pride, evil, and so forth. That person hasn't practised. Yes, they never had sex, but they didn't practise the acquiring of humility, repentance, and, um, and so forth. Selflessness, goodness, honesty... And that's why Christ closed the door to the five virgins. They were physically virgins, but what's the point in that? Canon 10. If anyone leading the life of virginity for the Lord should regard married persons disdainfully, let him be anathema. This canon, interpretation, this canon also anathematizes those who remain virgins for the love of the Lord, but who maintain a proud an arrogant attitude as regards those who are united in lawful marriage, as did the Eustathians. So if someone dedicates themselves and says, I want to remain a virgin, I want to be abstinent, whatever, and they look down at those married people and go, oh, they're scum, they're low, oh, they're not going to be saved, they're repulsive because they have sex, all these type of things, they are to be anathematised.
according to that canon. Council of Gangra, Canon 14. If any woman should abandon her husband and wish to depart because she hates marriage, let her be anathema. Interpretation. This too was a doctrine to, of the Estathians, the idea, the idea that is to say that women might leave their husbands and equally that men might leave their wives and depart on the ground that they hated marriage. Hence, the present canon condemned those who do this to the anathema. You can't just get up and go. See how the church thinks about marriage? And it says there, the little footnote by St Nicodemus, I think, it says, For many women here in the Estathians say that all women who are married are deprived of any hope of salvation, or men, departed from their husbands or their wives, but later, being unable to endure their condition, they committed adultery and were criticised on this account. So they got this zeal, I, I don't like marriage, sex is bad, I'm going to leave my husband, I'm going to leave my wife, I'm going to go away like we heard earlier, of that example of Father John Christianken. And it says here what happens, they can't hold themselves and they go and commit adultery, which a lot of them did, by the way. Council of Gangra, Canon 15. If anyone should abandon his own children or fail to devote himself to feeding his children and fail as far as depends on them to bring them up to be godly and have to respect for God, but under the pretext of ascetic exercise, should neglect them, let him be anathema. Now some of you might say, what's this got to do? Yes, it's got not to do with the sexual relations of what was the theme of the talk tonight. But I wanted to put this in just to get to give, which will go later on in the talk on children, upbringing of children. But I wanted to put this in to see the madness of how, how they were, which is similar to the woman that I said that left her children. The heret this is the interpretation. The heretic of Stathios and those who sided with him, not listening to these apostolic commandments, used to teach parents, used to, to, to teach parents to abandon their children in order to practice asceticism. Hence, the present canon anathematizes those parents who desert their children and fail to feed them, or who teach them neither godliness and respect for God nor virtue. Now, many today, they don't leave their children. But like religious freaks, they just do their spiritual life. Like, as I said before, I knew a fellow who had a lot of children, and he, and he would not, never be home, always doing, going around, helping others, supposedly going around, oh, a woman says, oh, can you come and help my son? He's on drugs. Yes, I'll come, come here. And his wife would say, how about your own children? And he said, to, and he said well, if I take care of other people's children, then God will take care of my children. All his children apostatized. All of them. We can't... This is where people get mixed up. They go, oh, I'm going to lead a spiritual life. I'm going to do that and neglect their own children. Read their books in their room for hours on end. They're in the children are on the computers looking at pornography. They wouldn't even know. Note. The Bible says in the Old Testament, flee evil and do good. 
Christian parents sometimes force their children not to do evil, but don't teach them to do the commandments and acquire virtue. So a lot of parents, even people that homeschool, they protect their children. They say, I'm not going to allow them to get to do evil, to be influenced. So they keep them away. No TV or no this, no, no computer games, don't go out, no dating, no this. So they say, you can't do all that because that's all evil. But at the same time, they don't teach them virtue. They don't teach them the commandments. So these kids have got nothing to replace so when they get a bit older, then they go out and they go crazy and they start living all that life because they've got no, they haven't got Christ in them. All they've got is that they, they didn't do any evil, but at the same time, they, their life wasn't, their heart wasn't filled with Christ, with the commandments. And the, the, um, the last one here, I think, let's have a look. Um... Abandoning one's children for asceticism, we did that. Now here's another one. Neglecting one's parents for asceticism. If any children of parents, especially of faithful parents, should depart on the pretext of godliness and should fail to pay due honour to their parents' godliness, that is to say being preferred with them, that is among them, let them be anathema. Interpretation says, not only are parents obliged to look after their children, but children also have an obligation to look after their parents to whom they should pay due honour. And I put in there the commandment. Honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so you may live long and that it may go well with you. And that was, I put that in. Anyway, the fathers go on. They say, um, but then again, apart from taking care of your children, it's also a commandment just to take care of the aged is also a kind of honour and so is feeding those that are ill an account of on account of old age and in want. So, in other words, they're trying to say, if we're obliged to take care of people that aren't even our parents, who are sick or old, they need help, then how much more our parents? The present canon means that children should not depart from their parents, even when their parents are unbelievers or heretics. So, if your parent is like an unbeliever or a heretic. You don't, that's not an excuse to go, oh, because they don't believe they're not orthodox or they don't believe that they're atheists, I'm gonna, I don't have to take care of them. He says, yes, you're not allowed to leave them as long as they're not trying to influence their children to unbelief or heresy. For this reason, it also anathematizes those children who leave their parents unprovided for and fail to honour them or take care of them in old age using the excuse of godliness and virtue. Well, I'm going to go and lead my spiritual life. My parents don't believe. Um, they don't go to church. If parents, however, who are unbelievers or heretics, try to influence their children to unbelief and heresy, or even though they are believers, they nevertheless are preventing them or pro prohibiting them from living according to Christ and from being virtuous and are pushing them towards things that are harmful to the soul and improper, then, and in that case, children have a duty to prefer godliness and virtue to carnal parents to unspiritual parents which amounts to saying that they ought to leave them without hating them and take their departure of course some of you don't understand i'll explain it to you quickly is that if your parent or parents are unbelievers or heretics and they're trying to convert you or trying to influence you then yes you have a right to leave now what happens if your parent is an orthodox christian a believer but they're still trying to uh, stop you 
of leading a spiritual life, you know, which a lot of parents do today, then it says that you have to prefer godliness and virtue to carnal parents, which amounts to saying that they ought to leave their parents without hating them and run for the hills, as they say, and take their departure. Now, some people... Why I brought this up is because I tried to say last week, last talk, this thing about the canons for, to, to do with divorce. And some people wait and they go, okay, yep, I feel threatened. The canons say I can divorce my wife or husband. Or my husband fell into sin, my wife fell into sin, I've got a right to, to leave. But I said last time, what happened to the struggle? What happened to your prayers trying to help that person not to do those things in the first place? And I, I had a fellow who had parents which were unbelievers. They were unbelievers, the parents. And this guy said to me, oh, well, they're unbelievers. Even though they're orthodox, they don't want me to go to church. They're trying to tell me that I shouldn't believe. I'm not going to go. He used to go and see them once every year or something, didn't care about them. And what I had said to this person, I said, it's very interesting that you're doing that because you have never asked for prayers for your parents. You have never even prayed yourself for your parents. You've made no attempt to be nice to your parents, even though they're unbelievable. You've done nothing. But as soon as you, you, you've got this excuse, why? Because you didn't want to help them in the first place. Because you're selfish. So you, you're, you're using the canon as an excuse. Oh, my parents don't believe that. Same as the, like a woman or a man. Oh, my husband is this, my wife's that, yes, the canons say I can divorce, off I go, goodbye, no, not even any attempt to fix that up, to pray beforehand, to be nice. Some people aggravate the situation so their conscience can be, oh, I'm leaving, I'm allowed to leave because my husband committed adultery or my wife committed adultery. Did you ever think that you caused it? You see, and that's the same with some parents. They can change if the, if the children are nice to them or pray for them. But some people don't do They go, oh, no, the canon here. Look, 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 the canon. It says it here. I have a right to leave my parents because my parents are telling me that I shouldn't go to church. That, that synod, as I said, was confirmed by the Sixth Ecumenical Council as being universal, accepted by all, and some even say even the fourth earlier on, even though it was a local synod. It was a synod that was dealing with the problem in that area, but then the church in the Ecumenical Council said, no, I think this is, and they were enlightened by God, and they said this will be the canons that will be for all Orthodox Christians. And you might say, but people don't think like that. Unfortunately, look at that poor fellow that I said before. And women. and men, A lot of people, there's a mess in to do with marriage. And especially to do with sexual relations. That is really big problem. People don't know what's right, what's wrong, what should they do, what happens here, what happens there. And then we have these married priests that say monastics shouldn't get involved and yet they don't do anything themselves or they blaspheme. 
Now I told you I wasn't going to hold back. I didn't hold back. And um, thanks, thanks be to God that I actually even got that out because I think people need to know these things so they can change their attitudes, which a lot of people have, have, have been, as I said, brainwashed from young, from the schools, from television. People today have the completely wrong view of sex, even though they're supposedly free because they're sexual revolution. And yet, a lot of divorces occur because of that. A lot of it got to do with that. And in the next talk, that's what I want to emphasise. Marital relations, how does each partner relate to each other? Are they allowed to deny, not deny, when this? I already touched on it today, but I want to go into more, into more um, detail. And notice the chairs are empty, what I was trying to say before, distractions. I'll get phone calls later on. Oh, sorry, Father, I didn't come because we had a birthday party for my cousin, for um, my nephew who's five years old, and we had to go to McDonald's. So you missed the talk for the... For the per oh, yeah, it's my... Distractions. Then you wonder why people can't become spiritual. OK, stand up. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of mercy, and save us. Amen. So that's the end of the talk. We'll do the prayer now for the team.